We got this, man. We got this by the ass. Why doesn't he have to wait a few minutes? Tonight is Mohawk night. If you had a Mohawk, you could go in. It smells like they're cooking a goddamn cat over there. Because you say I for me. The man goes broke, he can't handle it. The man is on tilt. You want to hear any more? Two dollars. Lick it up, baby. Lick it up. How about welcome to Pure Cinema? nailed it <laughs> we are back thank you for your patience we have a we have a new theme song kind of thing going on just in case you might have noticed that yeah the music's the, the tune stayed the same but we uh interjected some of our favorite obscurity quotes yeah it felt like a fun thing to do to sort of push the show into this new place and we won't talk about this too long but we've decided that we're gonna go with a bi-weekly format, and hopefully y'all will stick with us. Just know that it's been discussed quite a bit and thought about quite a bit, so it wasn't a decision we took lightly. But just things in life and work have gotten a little more complex since the beginning of the show. We always said we didn't want to do a bi-weekly show, but turns out this is what we think is best for the longevity of the program, ultimately. And I think for me, there's like the feeling of like wanting to enjoy what you do by having the time to research and watch more stuff. Like this week, for instance, for our topic, I got to watch five new things because we took an extra week, and that makes me so much more excited to talk about the stuff than if I'm like on a you know revolving door kind of uh, speed race to to cut a new show. So I think for this for our kind of show, it also became a lot more more curated than I think we thought the show would be when we did episode one and when we talked about the show. I think we were like, yeah, there won't be any editing. They'll just be <laughs> us talking about movies. And the more we go, the more we both, uh, our curatorial sensibilities are coming through. Where we're like, we want to not just edit clips, maybe uh, quotes by directors. And yeah. it, it becomes something that it's almost like like little mini essay, you know, conversation. So I think that's a really healthy thing to do. Because if that's the show we want it to be, let's take the time to do it. Yeah. So that's that little bit of news. But we are going to talk this week about one of our favorite uh, Blu-ray labels. I, I would go so far as I was thinking about this today. This is Twilight Time. And I, I was I was trying to think what is my favorite label because Criterion is such an easy one to to go to and and it probably you know it's uh, there's a reason people always call it the criterion of horror the criterion of whatever they're comparing because criterion does such a good job but in terms of if i looked at my top i feel like 20 i feel like there might be more twilight time titles in my top 20 than most other companies yeah. like they they're really good at those movies that are near masterpieces or or masterpieces of that uh, second tier of 70s filmmaking like those movies that some of them have fallen through the cracks and those tend to be my favorite movies. So, yeah, it's it's interesting when I really look through uh, their output. And we've already talked about a ton in our yeah. short time doing this. Yeah, just just incidentally. Yeah, I mean, they. I wanted to interview Nick Redman at some point about Danny Perry because part of me, I, I mean, I, I know he's aware of the books. I don't know if he wants to talk about it in the documentary context, but clearly his sensibility is at least partially in line with the Perry sensibility because some of the titles I'm going to go through tonight are movies I discovered through Perry's books. Some of the other movies we've mentioned on the show come through Perry's books, at least for me, but they exist on Blu-ray because of Twilight Time. 
And I think that's pretty cool. And that's part of the reason I'm with you, that they're definitely up there for me as one of my favorite labels out there. Do you remember how you discovered them or which title you first discovered through? Boy, that's a good question. What's what's your story on this one? Give me a second. I, I don't, I'm, I actually didn't even, this wasn't planned. I, I think I might've heard that they had say Fright Night or a, it was a horror title, I'm sure. And I was probably researching it for Killer POV at the time, trying to track something down and then stumbling across this you know, label that I didn't really understand. I remember really struggling the first time to figure out where to buy it. That's <laughs> so, something because I went to Screen Gems and I and it looked like a music website, and suddenly I was like, "What is this?" Like, I, d- I really didn't understand what they were the first time I was looking for something through them. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just up front, we should we can mention this maybe a few times just to remind you, but you'll probably want to go to ScreenArchives.com if you want to purchase any of these titles. That is their main place where the the titles exist. I mean, if you buy them, you can buy them through Amazon. The prices are usually a little higher, and you're not really supporting Twilight Time Direct if you do that. But, you know, just just so you're aware, ScreenArchives.com is is their main hub. Yeah, and a lot of the films, uh, some of the films we'll talk about might be currently out of print because they have a very, you know, they have a rare deal. Like, the way they actually operate is very different than a lot of the other companies, at least in terms of, uh, I don't want to say maybe the rigidity of it. Uh, other companies probably have these same deals that they're doing, but aren't maybe up front or don't tell us what it is. They have a very succinct deal for the most part. I believe it's 3,000 units for, for the most part. Yeah, I mean, this was something that I had heard explained, I believe, maybe in one interview prior to Nick coming on your old show, Killer POV. Um, but then he, he goes into some nice detail about it on the... Fr- he did two episodes of Killer POV, both of which people should totally check out. But he kind of explains their model and why they do what they do and sort of where it comes from pretty succinctly in his own words. Well, and yeah, and a big part of that was him wanting to do that was I think they were getting a bad rap at one point. Like I look at a company that puts out the quality that they put out and I'm just like, you know, hail, hail. You know, I, I am not going to be critical of that even when price points uh, seem high when he would get early on especially with horror fans uh, a lot of flack over things like I think it was like uh, Fright Night, Christine, Night of the Living Dead, uh, the Savini remake. Those titles went out of print so quick because all the copies got bought and then uh, they'd be sold on eBay for a fortune, which, again, isn't his doing, you know. And it caused, you know, I think at that point it caused a bit of a stir and a lot of kind of hit back. And so I think it was important for him to have an outlet to kind of, you know, just explain to people the format. And then that really helped. And it was also cool because it was a horror, where a, that was a horror show. And they're really not a horror label. They have a handful of horror titles, uh, some really good ones, uh, you know, very in demand titles. But it, it's just, it was interesting that he was so willing to kind of just fully jump in on the show. And one of the most uh, truly, you know, be quite honestly, one of the most more charming people I've met since living in L.A. Just a truly nice gentleman uh, of a character. This is Nick Redmond we're talking about. Yeah, Nick is great. I mean, I've never met the man, but I'm certainly a big fan. And one of the things that I love that they do is they do their own commentary tracks. And that's usually Nick and Julie Kirgo and they have a couple other regulars they'll bring in. But I just think that's a really neat thing because we were talking about curation, curation of our show, curation that you know this label does. The idea that you have a continuity between the releases of hearing these voices over and over again. And it's not like, you know, a couple of people who don't know what they're talking about. You know, Nick and Julie are incredibly knowledgeable about all kinds of cinema. And they're enthusiasts like we are, but they're also 
more on the scholarly side than we are. And so I just love that continuity that they have of these commentary tracks that run through. It's like hanging out with, uh, you know, some really cool film people, you know, every month when you listen to that stuff. Well, and I th- another thing about Twilight Time that sets them apart in a way, uh, which for some people might be negative, is that to me, me and you are actually, I was surprised when I asked you this recently, but you and I are uh, rare amongst collectors where extras and bonus features are really not as important to us from the times I've talked to you as a lot of friends of mine. A lot of my people I know are really collectors because they want that bonus documentary. That bo- If it's a great documentary that's you know about a controversial making of, um, all that, I'm super excited about that. But when it's just, let's make some interviews just to get some stuff on a disc, I don't really care. And, I, and it's not what sells me on the thing. I want a great transfer, a great looking movie. And I'll tell you what I think sets them apart. And this is something that is only coming from the last five days where I jumped into a few of my favorite uh, Twilight Time titles. And for the first time, this is something I hadn't done before, before, shame on me, I read all the booklets. Julie oh. Kurgo's booklets are astounding. Yes, yeah, she's fantastic. And she writes the liner notes. Well, she wrote them for all the ones I'm talking about, I assume the majority. And it was just like probably very similar to what you're saying about the commentaries. For me, they're, they're just like a, a perfect capsulation. They might not be exactly your read on the movie. Uh, I think they're, they're just really well put together. I, I, even though you were talking about them being on scholarly side, I don't feel like these the linear part, liner notes are. I feel like she's really good at uh, making, you know, talking about the film on its level, you know. And, and it's rare because in the modern day where we don't necessarily want to read as much film criticism as we might just listen to podcasts or, uh, you know, Know, read a tweet <laughs> in terms of our ability to take in like new information i find myself um when i was prepping for this really enjoying the act of after watching it sitting down with the little booklet and going oh this is great so that's something i really appreciate and i think she's a real treasure to what this uh label's doing yeah she is one of my favorite people in the sphere of you know dvd extras and you know the, the, those booklets i mean I, I absolutely love every time i've read one i've gotten some kind of fresh perspective or some point of view that i hadn't thought about and yeah she's fantastic so that's just the booklet. So then you can listen to her her and Nick talk about the movies on top of that, and it's just a really immersive experience. And I didn't mean scholarly in any kind of a stuffy way. Oh, no, I think you're right when you're you know, you know what I mean? when they talk. No, I think you're right about talking. What I mean is the booklet I feel like is a little different than them talking. You feel like the way she writes about it is maybe different than even how they would talk about it. Yeah. Uh, plus, Nick's British, so he'll sound scholarly. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> he could talk about anything, and he would sound uh, more intelligent than most of us. It's yeah, kind of- no, he sounds really sharp all the time. So, um, yeah, so I put together a little clip that I took from Nick talking from the first episode of Killer POV that he was on, and... It's a little long, but like I said, it gives you, in his words, what the whole premise behind the label is and what their model is. And there's some things in there that you wouldn't necessarily know, like that they put their own money in to start with and all that stuff. So... Well, I think that's valid to play. I th- I don't think it's just a clip in the sense of like a lot of our clips. I feel like this is like a good contextualization for, because we're what's what's the point of just interviewing and getting that information again like we could. But I think it makes sense to grab it, you know, plus I was there. <laughs> yeah, so that's right. And I think you're in the clip. 
uh, for a second. <laughs> Our first deal was made with 20th Century Fox, and uh, they were kind enough to give us about 100 films. But these were films that were mostly classics from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and some from the 70s, uh, but none that had any sort of contemporary cachet, not in that first batch. And so when Sony gave us Fright Night, along with other movies that they were giving us at the time, such as Major Dundee and Bell Book and Candle and uh, Cover Girl, uh, Fright Night kind of stood out a bit, you know, like the proverbial sore thumb. So we released it and we didn't know that people would want it. And in about five weeks, it had sold out. And of course, we got a grotesque number of complaints from people <laughs> saying, how dare you limit this? And we learned the hard way. And we said, well, you know, our model for all of our films is 3000 units. And we feel that we're being pretty straightforward when we say that we're limiting our runs to 3000 units, because the other companies are also limiting their runs, but they don't tell you what the mm. limit is. And you will see, you know, stuff going out of print, even on Criterion, and it goes out of print because they run out and they realize that there is no reason to print it again. We said right off the bat, we would do 3000 because all of the studio demographics pointed to the fact that for most catalog Blu-ray titles, 3000 was not only enough, it was in many cases going to be more than enough. It also suited us because I've spent the last 21 years at 20th Century Fox running their catalog soundtrack program. And we developed the idea of doing 3000 unit runs. It was really working for soundtracks. Since Blu-ray was not taking off in the way that the studios thought it would, uh, we said, let's pick that magic 3000 number. It works for soundtracks. It may very well work for Blu-rays. And for 90% of them, it does. Is there a reason why, uh, besides the 3000 units in general, is there also contractual, you know, because a studio is giving you, are they wanting you to limit the run? Would they be fine if you did more than that? Or is, is that kind of also part of the deal making you have to do with studios on these titles? Well, the standard deal that most, uh, let's say, video labels do with the studio is that they will agree a royalty point for an unlimited, a theoretically unlimited run, which means that the studio has to get involved with accounting. In other words, yeah. the studio wants you to submit to them semi-annual sales reports. It gets very tricky because it means that the studio has to usually put somebody on that mm -hmm. and take up time worrying about how many units did we sell of this, that and the other. So when we went to them with the idea of the limited edition, it was music to their ears because we said we will pay you in advance for the whole run. No right. accounting doesn't take up anyone's time. There's no management required, which studios often say no to propositions mm. because they can't afford to have someone else be taken away from the job that they are supposed to be doing to do some other job that they may deem to not be very financially rewarding. So we took all of that out of the equation. One of the reasons why they, um, you know, really wanted to do this in the beginning, it sounded simple. They knew that we were going to be simply targeting real sort of core collectors. So we are targeting, I think, probably the same hardcore audience that used to make up uh, what the Laserdisc uh, market was mm -hmm. in the early 90s. We are sort of trying to identify a kind of a classy quality all across the map, everything from dramas to melodramas to comedies to science fiction. You know, we, we're saying we don't discriminate against any kind of movie. We'll do them all, providing they sort of fit into our rather loose Twilight Time uh, brand. Everything that we... The revenue that comes in goes straight back into buying more titles. So it's sort of become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Brian and I and Julie uh, chipped in out of our own pocket yeah. to start this thing. It's purely self-funded. We didn't go to any bank. We couldn't. You know, it was 2008, 2009. Right. 
Uh, no bank was going to lend us any money. So we've self-funded everything, and it's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right now, it pays for itself, and there's a little bit left over right. to keep pushing into the next things. So we will go out of business when people stop buying uh, the Blu-rays mm. that we choose to put out. We don't have to necessarily think that anything is going to do well in order to put it out. Mm. I, we have put out things that I know going in will be total clunkers. And all I say to people is, Providing I can get a blob this year, all of those sins will be paid for. It's, it's like when I started the um, soundtrack restoration program at Fox, I was putting out things like Stormy Weather, Julie Andrews Star. Mm -hmm. I was putting out How Green Was My Valley. Mm -hmm. All of them were tanking. And then I got Star Wars and worked with Lucasfilm. Mm -hmm. We put out the four-disc set on Arista, and that sold enough to cover all of the other things. And, mm -hmm. I, and I employ the same philosophy, if that's the right word, with Twilight right. Time. We have absolute clunkers, but they're films that we love or we feel personal about for whatever reason. And providing I can find something uh, that will pay for all the losses that I'm mm -hmm. racking up on those titles, we can stay in business and we can continue. And I think that one of the reasons why physical media is going away, and I know that there are people that resist the idea that it is, but it really is going away. And it's going to do exactly what we said it would do three or four years ago, which is to default to a purely niche collector's market and that all of the releases would be uh, handled by third-party distributors, meaning mm -hmm. it would not be the studios themselves. It would be the cr criterions, the shouts, the images, the mill creeks, uh, and everybody like that. And and us, you know, we, we I mean, we jokingly called this thing Twilight Time because we thought it would last a year because it was the <laughs> twilight time of the business. That's why that was what we, uh, that was our little joke going in. And, and what we have found is that we were both right and wrong. We were right about the fact that the studios would back away. But we would, were wrong about the fact that um, people's interest in Blu-rays would go away as quickly because there is quite a number of people who really do love the idea of having a Blu-ray that they can look at, that they can put on their shelf, that they can flip through the booklet. Mm. Um, and th these people are resistant to streaming, at least they are at the moment. So another thing we wanted to do is just touch on one at least one title well we'll touch on movies we have already mentioned on the show and then one title that we both unilaterally agree go get yeah, it's the uh, it's the uh, pure cinema uh seal so that that <laughs> certainly makes sense yeah i mean uh, we've already mentioned a bunch and i i guarantee you i will not have caught probably most of mine i the ones that i had been so basically the tricky part about our show is when we know a topic's looming, like down the track, say we, so for instance, we thought Twilight Time was going to be last season. We had it on our schedule the whole way until something changed. I can't remember what it was. And because of that, there's certain titles I avoid in other lists, whether I'm doing crime films or I'm doing, it's like, oh, I know I want to do this one, but I'm going to hold out a little longer. So for me, Sexy Beast was one that, I had been waiting for the Twilight Time episode, but then something else came up. U-Turn was one, and then I had a better topic for it. So uh, those are two big ones for me. Stardust Memories uh, obviously was a big one. Bonjour, Tristice, and Romeo's Bleeding. Uh, they're the ones I've caught for myself. Uh, did you pick Pretty Poison, or did I pick Pretty Poison? Uh, you did, I believe, okay. in a handshake. Yeah, that was early... It was mentioned in the handshake, and I can't remember if I actually called it a handshake title or if I just mentioned it as... Anyway, that's a big one. Uh, I love their Blu-ray of Pretty Poison. And then just last episode on the Tarantino, I mentioned At Close Range, and that's another uh, Twilight Time disc. Um, I know I've done a few more, that, but I, I missed... Uh, oh, The Driver. That's that's definitely one I've yep. I did. 
Oh, and Big Heat. Big Heat was last week too, or yeah, last Big episode. Heat. So that's about you know four or five. Like I said, these are they're they're so in line with my sensibility, and I think yours too. That this stuff just naturally comes out, you know, and and I love that. Yeah, and I think uh, even though a lot of the ones we might talk about today might just happen to be currently sold out, a couple of their titles that I really like had been sold out at one point. I might have bought an expensive, you know, Blu-ray, hunting it down, and then at some point another small run of them came out and it doesn't happen all the time with them but it's something not to kind of completely write off oh the train uh, the train i mentioned that last week too yeah and yeah, that yeah. is actually one of those titles that sold out initially and then they repressed it alfredo garcia i feel like have we mentioned that maybe that hasn't come up on the show but that's it, the... it was almost in the original handshake all right that's right anyway yeah, and then there's a lot of horror titles. I'm not going to go too deep into the horror ones today because I, I spent a lot of time on other shows, but I will say I had a, a very deep love of their blob uh, yes. disc that was out. But it's coming come getting a normal release now, right? I believe it just got a kind of a regular Blu-ray label. I'm not sure what, what it was. Oh, cool. I didn't even know. Because this one was sold out for a while. Yeah, great disc. Um, Great yeah, great. So the PCP seal of approval for today, uh, which means basically we're going to agree on probably most of our yeah. our list anyway. But this one is one I could see almost being both of our number ones in a different, you know, on any given day. And that's why I think we we discussed to bring it up, put it up front. But uh, that is uh, the great uh, Fat City by John Houston. Ernie, uh, you must think I'm crazy working out here like this, wasting my time. I'll tell you something, it's almost as good as road work for getting back into shape, and you get paid for it. Another couple of weeks, I'm going to look for a fight. I get the fight, I get the money, and I send for my wife. You know, Ernie, there are some women that love you for yourself, but that doesn't last long. Ernie, take care of that wife of yours. Oh, God, I'm trying. And listen, don't you let anybody knock marriage. Oh, no, man. It's got his compensations. That's a fact. He's got the access for the rent. He's got his compensations. That's it. That's absolutely it. It has got its compensations. That's right. From 1972. Yeah, fantastic. Fantastic boxing movie. But so much more than that, really. Yeah, it's just the. It's almost like a, a watching a drifters movie, but the, the characters just happen to be these boxers. One one is kind of more or less on the way down, and one's on the, a young one on the way up. With Jeff Bridges and Stacy Keach, and Keach is just one of my. He's kind of like Warren Oates. He's one of my favorite actors. When when he had a good role and he got to sink his teeth in, I, there's just no one more interesting to watch on screen. He's just fantastic. Uh, Susan Tyrell. I think we briefly mentioned this film. When me and you were doing our, uh, when I was talking about Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker, yeah, code back red. on the yeah Code Red episode, and uh, because Susan Tyrell is uh, you know so good in that, but this is the superior performance because this is such an emotive and a kind of you know grounded, real. She play, like, plays the gypsy love interest uh, who's always at the bar, and man, she's good. Yeah, she's something else. I mean, yeah, between Butcher Baker and this movie, she'll become somebody that you don't know why you d- you didn't know about before seeing those two basically just just an under the radar amazing talent you know 
And I'm also a big fan of, and not, in this movie she's good, but Candy Clark's one of those interesting actors that yeah. uh, I feel like when she's in the right role, like uh, Man Who Fell to Earth, she can be really great. Like she's just a really interesting presence and just goes for it. And uh, I just, I love the way the, the, the male relationship, uh, I, I wouldn't go so far to necessarily say mentor all the time. It's a strange, you know, uh, relationship the two guys have. Uh, I wish I could have wa- wa- rewatched that for this episode. I haven't seen it for a while. I don't think I've seen this transfer of it yet but man it's just one of those ones that really it's the other big thing is look houston is such a giant among the great directors in my opinion but his latter period you know had a lot of duds in there too uh and there's a couple real gems and one of them I, i'm thinking down the line i'm sure will come up for me but fat city is is really i think is you know great masterpiece from his latter period yeah and, i found sorry i found a clip of him actually talking about it in 1972 that I'll just throw in here too because I, I just haven't seen him talking about a lot of his movies which is I just thought it was great that you know I actually found him on record speaking about it the producer of the film Ray Stark sent me the novel um, it was about boxing in California where I was a young man and had myself done a little boxing and um, uh, memories uh, for me echoed right through the through the pages of the book so um, I instantly said I'd like to do the, make the film. And um, going back to that scene of my childhood, which wasn't very different from the one that's in the film, was like a sentimental journey. I rather agree with Hemingway in that winners take nothing anyway. The fighter, of course, is almost... Um, the cards are stacked against him. He can't come to a very, to a very good end. He's like, um, or unlike the gambler that throws his money into the, onto the table, into the pot, the fighter throws himself in. He's in for a bad time. He, uh, he's a dedicated man as a rule. He gives, he gives more to, uh, to his profession than almost any other artist <laughs> that, I, that I know. And the, the chances of, of him being a success italics are very remote indeed only one out of thousands of course ever gets to be champion and even being champion doesn't necessarily mean that he's found any security or haven in life I naturally feel great compassion towards the fighter um, of course the figures I mean we're all fighters in sense it's uh, he encloses the fighter the he's a symbol the fact that he's we all take we all take those same beatings some spiritually some some mentally and um, maybe the lucky man physically plus he's got a great voice yeah that's the one big thing about him that i always <laughs> I will never forget is is his voice is just incredible you know well chinatown you know no one will forget him in chinatown so mr gets what are you charging my usual fee. What's the bonus if I get results? Are you uh, sleeping with her? Come, come, Mr. Gibbs. You don't have to think about that, remember. Yeah. If you want an answer to that question, Mr. Cross, I'll put one of my men on the job. Good afternoon. Mr. Gibbs. Gittis. Gittis. You're dealing with a disturbed woman who just lost her husband. I don't want her taken advantage of. Sit down. What for? 
You may think you know what you're dealing with, but believe me, you don't. Yeah, he's something else. I think I first heard of Fat City in this weird way, and I may have told you about it, but I don't know if I've told the story on the show. Outside of the Perry books, one of the great things I found, and I wish I could find it again in my college years, was this, I feel like it was a magazine article. Remember print magazines? Um, anyway, well, I still I still go to bookstores to read them. I'm I don't just... buy them. <laughs> I'm part of the problem. But so I think it was in a magazine. I can't remember which one. But basically, it was it went down a list of current ish filmmakers, and it said, "What are some of your favorite movies?" And you know, it had uh, I want to say Jodie Foster mentioned uh, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, Paul Schrader's movie, which I'd never seen, and there were some others that I'm blanking on now. But one of the big ones was Ron Shelton. Now, this is the interesting thing for me. Some might not be the biggest Ron Shelton fan. Like, he directed Bull Durham, White Men Can't Jump, Tin Cup. I actually like all those movies, personally. But, you know, you may see him as more of a, a sports movie guy. And so, I, when I was like, Ron, I saw that Ron Shelton, I'm like, well, what is what is he into? And he mentioned Fat City. And I was like, okay, well, I'll give that a look. And after that, my my feelings about Ron Shelton shifted completely because I just was like, wow, if he's into this and he aspires to this, um, it just changed the context of how I look at his movies. And uh, I hadn't even seen Tin Cup until about two years ago, and I absolutely loved it in the, in that context and outside of that context. But I always love that I came to John Huston through Ron Shelton. Uh, white Man Can't Jump, baby. I like that movie, man. I'm a huge fan when I was young. I haven't seen it for a long time, but I was a big fan of that when I was young. Yeah, uh, an interesting story, and it makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of movies that Monty Hellman had been attached to or almost attached to that, to me, like when he would tell stories, I'd be like, oh, that's strange. I can't really see it. Uh, He was like hours short of directing Fat City, and his his agent – from what I when I remember the story, his agent just like was a beat too late, and Houston's offer got in just before his, because uh, you know on the heels of Tulane, I could totally see it. It even has almost a feeling of some of Hellman's stuff. If you look at Tulane Blacktop and The Cockfighter, there's somewhere in between those films, Fat City, there's some of that in there, I think, even more than some of Houston's work. So yeah. it really probably could have worked, even though, you know, hey, who cares, because it's a masterpiece. But I remember kind of finding that story uh, yeah, pretty pretty interesting. Was he a uh, fan of the final movie? Do you know? I think he did like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think curious. he liked Houston. In general, he liked Houston's work. He, he was a huge treasure of this Sierra yeah, Madra fan. Nice. Uh, yeah, no, definitely, definitely a fan of Houston's. So, um, so yeah, definitely Fat City. Go get it. That's our thing for that. Mm-hmm. Um, that is our yes. That's the one we grew on. So first, uh, one thing we like to do with our label uh, conversations is a first time viewing. It gives us a chance to watch something new that's new to us. There's it's unlimited. We don't want to only just recycle movies we love. And I'm curious which one you went for. I you know I spun through. I want to say three or four that I won't mention. Not because they weren't good, but they weren't. They didn't have that that thing that I wanted. I think you and I connected. I you know we've talked about it on the early show, I, the early uh, first episode about my discoveries lists that I do at Rupert Pumpkin Speaks, and that is the reason that blog exists today is because of those lists and because mm-hmm. I wanted to continue to to challenge myself and to get recommendations and try and seek out more stuff to discover every year and to find out what other people are discovering. And those lists have fueled me for years and years. 
and I'm always looking for something to add to my own list. I'm always keeping my own private letterbox list of movies that I'm discovering in a given year. So the one that got me, though, and I should have seen it a long time ago. I don't know why I hadn't seen it, but it's Support Your Local Sheriff from 1969. Well, I see you found a badge. Yeah. Now we're going to set out to clean up this town? Yeah, I guess that's about it. All by ourselves? Not that we had turned down any help that was cheerfully offered. Nobody's going to offer no help, cheerful or any other way. I think you're probably right, Jake. And, I, you know, like I said, I know a lot of people know this movie. It's directed by Burt Kennedy, and I've talked about him a bunch on the show. You know, him writing for Bud Bedecker and how how much I like, you know, his stripped-down screenplays. And so that alone, and I love James Garner. So part of me is like, why, yeah. did, between Burt Kennedy and James Garner, why hadn't I seen this? I think I had thrown it in with like Maverick or something like that. Not that I have an issue with Maverick, but I felt like it was one of those. I kind of love Maverick. <laughs> I, no, I, I, I mean, not that, not the movie Maverick, but the TV show. Uh, oh, okay. I, and I like, I like Maverick actually. I like the other Maverick, but the TV show for some reason, I just was like, oh, it's James Garner doing a certain kind of shtick or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to logic out why I hadn't seen it, but it's one of his best roles for me this support your local sheriff role i mean he is just so perfectly right in the pocket for this thing i mean you know the the basic plot is that you've got like a sort of a lawless town built around uh some some gold discoveries and he comes into the town and is kind of a con man, which is part of the thing I, I like about him. He's not just like a goody two shoes kind of character, but it, he becomes the sheriff of the town and it's this whole thing of like cleaning up the town, but they do it in such a clever and interesting way that, and funny way that I just was absolutely charmed by this movie. I mean, uh, right away, like there's a scene towards the beginning where, you know, Bruce Dern is in the movie and I, and I absolutely love him. Cause like he, and uh, Walter Brennan, and I forget the name of the other brother, but they're like the bad, you know, characters in the town, the bad family that kind of does what they want and nobody messes with them. And this town's had tons of sheriffs already because, uh, partially because of this family and because they run people out of town or the sheriffs get shot. or So anyway, James Gardner witnesses a shooting. He happens to be, before he's made it known that he wants to be sheriff, he's just kind of feeling out the town. He's in a saloon. He sees Bruce Stern shoot shoot a guy over a card game. And and Bruce Stern is like, you know, that was self-defense. Everybody saw that, right? And everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. And Garner right away is like, you know what? You you led him, man. You you led with your shoulder. I saw what you did there. You you tricked him. You tricked him into drawing first so you, you could kill him. And and he's and he's just very brazen about it. And Bruce Stern is like in shock because nobody talks to him that way. And then Garner just leaves after like calling him out. Um, so immediately he makes an enemy with Bruce Stern, who we both love. And and then the tension mounts. You know, you don't look near as tough as some of them other sheriffs we've had lately. Particularly that old boy had done run off about an hour and a half after he took the job. Joe. Just make me feel tired all over when you talk like that. Now, what do you mean by that? It's bad enough to have to kill a man without having to listen to a whole lot of stupid talk from him first. And remember, Joe, I've seen you draw. And But there's still a ton of comedy. Like, the other great thing is that his deputy ends up being Jack Elam. And Jack Elam's one of my favorite character actors ever, and so there's a great comedy duality between the two, James Garner and Jack Elam, and so it just becomes one of those things, oh, Gene Evans, that's who I was trying to think of, Gene Evans is the other brother, it's like Bruce Stern, Gene Evans, 
and and Walter Brennan as this bad family. So it's just one of those things where you're like, how is he going to figure this out? Is he going to get killed? Is somebody else going to get killed? How is he going to do this? And it just plays out so perfectly. There's a couple like goofier, you know, slapstickier scenes in there, but but overall, I was I just thought it was absolutely a wonderful movie, and will certainly be among my favorite discoveries of 2017 for sure. Nice. That one I don't know at all. So. It sounds right up my alley. It's got all the people I love. Yeah, there's just the, the, the kind of character actors and actors that y- you and I just you slot right in with. So I think you'd love it. Yeah, and there's a lot. That's one of the great things about Twilight Time. They're, I'll scan through there. You know, with Criterion, I tend, even though I, I mean, I love Criterion, I tend to have no, I tend to know all the films. I, I don't think it's, it's rare that a film is announced on Criterion that because, maybe it's just because I also watch a lot of foreign films. I, I just am always like, oh, cool, that's finally coming out. I haven't been floored by discoveries as much there. Twilight Time reminds me a little bit more of the uh, drama slash art house version of Code Red in terms of, not not their presentation, but in terms of, you know, hey, what is this movie? I have no idea. I've never even seen this cover. And then I watch it and it's some, you know, incredible piece of work. So uh, that's one of the cool things about them. For my one, uh, actually, this, I love it when this happens. It came from a listener. Uh, there was a listener, longtime listener of Shockwaves and Killer POV, who also now listens. I believe he lives in, don't want to butcher it, Sweden, Denmark, somewhere in there. Um, <laughs> one of those countries. He has very good taste uh, in cinema. I'm always, uh, we, you know, uh, pretty much agree on a, a lot of uh, movies. And he kept, he, he mentioned this title a couple times to me. Uh, saying it's just one of his absolute favorite movies. So I finally bought it. So thank you, sir. Uh, and that is Emperor of the North, directed by Robert oh, Oldrick. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. 1933, the depths of the Great Depression. An army of homeless men roamed the land, stealing rides on the railroads. They were nomads who lived by no law but their own. And dedicated to their destruction was the railroad man who stood between them and the trains. Hang on for action adventure that roars like thunder. A hobo called A number one, and a railroading man named Shaq meet in battle at breakneck speed in Emperor of the North. Yeah, 1973. uh, That's gonna come up later, by the way. Oh, shit. (laughs) Keep going. Uh, Oh, crazy. All right. Well, but we might have a couple of those uh, along the way. Excellent. I'll just I'll just go. Yeah, I'd never seen this movie. And it, it's one I bought because he had mentioned it and I kind of trusted on the taste. This is uh, I won't talk too long about it then. This is the ultimate anti-establishment film. And I, I, I just absolutely love it for that reason. Like a Robert Aldrich's one of the best action directors in the history of cinema. He really just is fantastic at staging things. And he's a tough guy. You know, that's, I guess, the irony of uh, why he was <laughs> misrepresented on that new uh, Joan Crawford, Betty Davis TV show where they made him look the opposite of a, of the kind of uh, tough guy he was from all accounts. But um, this it's a, you know, 1933 during the Depression. Uh, there's a character, a brutal train conductor guy called Shaq, uh, which is a awesome uh, Ernest Borgnine just going for every scene to the hilt as he does in later Ernest Borgnine career. But in this part, it's a really fantastic role. And then one of, you know, I imagine both of our favorite actors, Lee Marvin, in a role as a hobo uh, who just is a dreamer hobo about uh, called uh, what's his name a number one a number one and uh, his the goal of a lot of hobos is to ride ride this uh, train and this particular train which is impossible to ride because Shaq is brutal he picks up a hammer and you know not clocks people in the head and knocks them kills them off his train if if he has to uh, and it's pretty brutal like at the start the opening sequence I was like Jesus like I didn't realize this was a thing I know especially when you think about it, it's like it's so much the man like the man stopping people 
people from just riding a train. It's basically the opposition of freedom because really they're not trying to go anywhere. They just want to, they're these, you know, kind of free spirits riding the rails and somebody's so against that freedom that it's worth killing them for is a pretty incredible anti-establishment message at the time. And it's just pushing these two characters against each other. And then young Keith Carradine uh, comes into the story as this, uh, young whippersnapper trying to be uh, full of shit basically always a very hopped up performance which is fun uh and you know trying to kind of bond with marvin and it's uh, a difficult a difficult alliance but it ends with one of the best fight scenes i've ever seen uh on on a train on a moving train and it's just yeah it was a it was a a great little uh find so i appreciate that uh recommendation and we can we can talk about it a little more later yeah (laughs) yes let's do that very cool um, so let's get into it, maybe. Yeah, let's do it. I, I also have one more. Oh, you? Oh, go for it. No, Sorry. No, not here. Not here. One more that you know about, uh, ah. because I knew it would be on your list. Yes, so yes. So <laughs> that was the one I was most excited about visiting for the first time. It's been a... So sometimes on the show, we've been uh, mentioning a lot of movies the other person hasn't seen at times, so it's... And rarely have the time to catch up to them yet. So this is one that was top of my list of your recommendations, so I'm looking forward to getting into that when we get there. I really want to hear your thoughts, because I only know that you liked it, and, and we didn't go too deep, so... Can't wait to talk about it. Um, <clears throat> for my number five spot, I actually swapped in, and this list was complicated because there's so much breadth to what they do. You know, I thought about things like used cars. You know, could very well have been on my list, but I just decided I'm gonna. Did save. you go with um, favorites, or did you go with just like a, a mix up? Because I really four of these are like four of my favorite films of all time. I have and one is fun. One, two, three. I have three favorites. And one that I really like, and this this one here I, is more of a nostalgia pick, but I do like it a lot. But I, I could have gone all favorites. I could have gone five favorites, easy. Easy, um, yeah. I could go ten favorites. I mean, they legitimately have some of my favorite movies ever made. So this was tough. So I just decided to change it out, mostly because I had a certain kind of thematic going that I wanted to swap a little bit. So... Uh, but this one, a lot of people know and love from, I think it was a cable staple in the 80s, and that's Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. These men will rob America of her might. He won't be with us for much longer. Unless someone... Relax. ...can stop them. Concentrate! This is not time for prayer! Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. With Fred Ward... And so this one, I th- I remember seeing on VHS when I was a kid, and it was one of those where you see it, and I, I liked James Bond. I thought James Bond was, you know, fun and everything, but he wasn't totally, like, my guy, you know? Like, he just, he he was far too sophisticated and suave for me. And so when I saw this character, I was immediately drawn to him because he's much more of a blue-collar James Bond-type character. I mean, the idea is that Fred Ward plays a guy who and it's based on a series of novels i believe the destroyer novels um so he plays a cop who this like government organization recruits to be part of their team and this organization consists of like four guys basically it's like wilford brimley and uh, a couple other dudes that <laughs> that are the gist of this whole thing so so anyway he gets sucked in and they change his face a little bit, a la seconds. And then he's trained by Joel Gray, who's like very much a Miyagi type character, to become uh, kind of an assassin sort of thing. But 
anyway, he's he's very clumsy and oafish, and you know, Joe Gray says things to him like, "You move like a pregnant yak." And, and things like that. So it's a very, there's a very fun antagonistic relationship between the two of them. And then there's some like government conspiracy stuff over some, some weapon dealers and things like that. That, but 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 the fun part is Fred Ward. I, I think again, you and I are both big fans of him as an actor. And seeing him in a lead role, he just didn't get a lot of those. You know, I mean, he got a lot of supporting roles, and he was always great. But I, I also do love that this is a lead thing for him. And like I said, it's just an 80s nostalgia movie for me. You know, I don't know. I, I, were you a fan of this one? Have you seen it? Mind blowing. I have never seen Remo Williams. Okay. Well, no, I, I mean. It's, it's I wonder not... maybe in New Zealand we had the Commonwealth. So maybe we, we're into Bond more than, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's not, like I said, it's not one that everybody knows. But this is one that for me, like I thought would be sold out because of how many people I knew in the Midwest and wherever that knew and loved Remo Williams. And it's still it's still available. You can still get it. And I, I just thought for sure that this one would sell out quicker than it has because it's been available for a few years now. Um, and it's a great disc, by the way. Lots of extras and um, definitely worth getting. But, yeah, that's just my, you know, my 80s video store nostalgia pick. You know, just a lot of fun. Some great action sequences. There's one that ties into Saboteur that takes place on and around the Statue of Liberty. And this is I back... saw that on the cover of the, the disc. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great bit. Like this is back in the eighties. They, they redid the Statue of Liberty where they like changed out her, um, the copper, I guess. And so they had this scaffolding up around her for a long time. And so there's this whole action sequence that plays out on that scaffolding and it's great. So that's kind of saboteurish. And then there's a tie into the warriors in that there's a scene on the wonder wheel in oh, cool. on Coney Island, it's actually on the. You know, it's not just a shot of the Wonder Wheel. There's actually, you know, some slight action on the Wonder Wheel itself. So that's a great little bit. And and there's one more thing I noticed this time that I hadn't totally put together, which is something I enjoy very much in the thing, and that is, and this movie has it too, and that's Wilford Brimley sitting in front of a computer that's doing impossible, silly things. Like, just, like, showing him, you know, ridiculous data in, like, this perfect presentation or it's streaming video in some way that in 1985, it just doesn't seem possible, you know, and he just sits there and looks at the computer and it basically expositorily gives him everything he needs because (laughs) it's so awesome. So, anyway, I kind of like Wilford Brimley sitting in front of computers getting expository data. So, That's pretty funny. Yeah. See, I went wildly different for my number five because in mine, Wilford Brimley doesn't even have a computer. (laughs) That's how different my pick is from your pick. And that's about the only difference because I also went for my uh, nostalgia, 80s, but more than nostalgia, more like just pure glorious fun from the from the uh, 80s. But it's funny because it also does have Wilford Brimley. Uh, this movie, oh boy, if this is the movie like this is the movie on my list. You don't necessarily have to buy <laughs> everything else you have to buy. This one you have to watch if you haven't seen it. Uh, you'll, if you are have tastes in the same ballpark as me, you'll buy it anyway afterwards because you're going to love it so much. You'll know what I'm talking about when I say this is the first film that Charles Pronson did with a little group called Canon Films. Okay. And this is the movie 10 to Midnight. Nice. A sensational crime. <laughs> An airtight alibi. We can't lay a finger on this guy. And a chain of evidence. Bring him in. Charles Bronson is a cop looking for a killer, and he's running out of time. Go ahead, take me in. You can't punish me. 
when the guilty go free. I was a girl to be everybody. The system is the crime. Director J. Lee Thompson, who also did some legit movies like Guns of Navarone and Cape Fear, uh, later on Happy Birthday to Me, uh, British director. This movie is one of those films that when I first saw it, I literally could not believe what I was seeing. Like it is in the bonker, holy fucking shit territory because it's a it's so unusual because this movie is filmed uh, because Jay Lee Thompson is actually a really solid director. It's filmed in a way that is kind of, I almost want to say fairly realistic and simply. It's not like kind of ridiculous as as when I start talking about the plot and what actually <laughs> happens. And then the other thing is Charles Bronson gives one of his all time best performances. It is like the one of the most grounded, uh, lived in roles he's ever played. I think it's probably the best copies that like he plays it on such a you know, just easygoing. Uh, there's something about it's when, when movies like this where you really see why somebody was a star. You know, because I watch Once Upon a Time in the West and I go, okay, wow, this is like incredible, right? The the kind of almost stone faced approach he has. Uh, but when it gets to this part of his career, he, sometimes he's good, sometimes he's bad. But he really anchors this film in a way where he doesn't have to do a lot, but he feels lived in. I feel like he's played so many cops by this point. This guy feels like a real cop to me, like yeah. everything about it. Uh, but this movie is like, like I said, it's utterly bonkers. Let's start before I tell you the plot with what Ebert said. <laughs> Ebert gave this zero stars. Oh, and he said a scummy little sewer of a movie. <laughs> but where, where he got one thing wrong, he forgot one word, which is the word glorious. <laughs> A glorious scummy little sewer of a movie is a perfect description of this movie, dude. And and you will love it. Yeah, I was gonna say let's let's go back to your initial like you don't have to buy this movie thing. Let's both. I think this gets a, a pure cinema seal of approval as well oh, sure. as Fat City oh, because I would say people should buy this movie. Just buy this movie because well, I is... mean there's some people who yeah I'm only saying that in terms of uh, quality. Sure, uh, no, no, everyone's gonna you. want to buy this after they I watch agree. it. But if any of my titles were like, watch, then buy, so that would be this one. So entertaining and crazy, dude. This movie is great. Love it. So the fun part. Okay, so now that, that gets all that out of the way. For those who don't know, a lot of friends of ours will already be big fans. That's, there's some great clips of this in the Canon Films documentary, Electric Boogaloo, which is a lot of fun. But basically, it's a LAPD detective. Uh, guess who plays that role? Uh, on the trail of this very uh, handsome, chiseled, young a uh, guy who's out there uh, trying to trying to seduce terribly. The weird thing, he's very attractive, and but he's terrible with women. Like every <laughs> woman he approaches has no interest in him. So he's obviously already putting out kind of a creepy, aggressive vibe. But he's from the very start, he's slashing women, and uh, in a way that's in this the uh, violence. Even though it's totally an exploitation film, it never isn't an exploitation film. But it does it in a way that feels really real and sad and sc- quite scary at times, especially at the start. So basically, the thing that sets this movie part for those who are wondering this just sounds like every other movie is that this character is completely nude every time he goes after a woman <laughs> and they do not shy away from the male nudity the female nudity i mean he literally strips down puts on gloves and then runs at full throttle after woman like in the woods and uh you know in the, in the middle towards the end in the middle of a street i mean it's fucking amazing like you're watching it going whoa like they are just going for it and they just there's no shying away so it's like that it's got that kind of like the um the male version of uh, life force in the sense that <laughs> they are not shying away like it's canon which is also canon it's like 
there's no rules like canon film seems to be like there's this little period of big budget wild west like oh yeah just do whatever you want as long as it's entertaining and i feel like this movie's doing that but it's also very realistic kind of procedural at times like it's it's basically a cat and mouse like uh at a certain point pretty early on in the film uh you bronson realizes he might not be able to catch him so he kind of uh pulls a making a murderer and <laughs> uh you know gets into a little bit of trouble in this guy and he's worried this guy is going to keep killing so it becomes this cat and mouse between these two characters but early on the killer you know this is pretty early so it's not much of a spoiler the killer goes to a movie theater and he purposely hits on some girls you know they kind of are pissed off and disgusted by it they move away but he he does it so as they'll remember him and then he goes to the bathroom props open a bathroom goes out to commit a murder comes back before the movie's over as his alibi and so it, it builds up a very when I say procedural, the cop story is procedural, but so is the killer. And the killer is just clearly out of his mind. I mean, he's one of those. But the the role, uh, the actor there is um, uh, da, 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 Gene Davis. And he does a really fantastic job uh, with this role because I think it's, I mean, for one, it's definitely the, feels like the precursor for American Psycho. I mean, there's so much of what happens in American Psycho in this character from the physique, the way he looks, the nudity. Uh, it really feels like it could have been an inspiration. But uh, some of you, if you're like me and big cruising fan, he plays Da Vinci, which is the cross-dressing uh, informant in cruising. Which you, And he's the brother. This is something I didn't know about today. He's the brother of Brad Davis, the great actor from Midnight Express and uh, Fassbender's Corral, who died of AIDS really young, which is pretty amazing. But anyway, the character he plays is Warren Stacy, and the serial killer is largely based on Richard Speck, uh, who at one point went into a dormitory and killed a bunch of women, and they kind of replicate something like that in this, uh, and also Ted Bundy on the physical appearance side of it. So they, they took from a lot of different uh, real murders that were happening. He even drives a Volkswagen Beetle, which is what Ted Bundy famously drove. Uh, so they, you know, they really laced it with a lot of fun, realistic things to make something that is basically a really over-the-top cat-and-mouse game. So it's it's a little gem of that of that kind of subgenre and, and definitely worth your time. Yeah, I'm a big fan of this one. Like I said, incredibly entertaining. The other thing I like about Twilight Time of many things is that they definitely like the Bronson. So there's a mm-hmm. lot of Bronson in the mix there for you to check out. You know, the, the stuff that, you know, you don't hear talked about as much, you know, like Murphy's Law or Hard Times or things like that. So really good Bronson stuff. But anyway... One of the things I love about Ten to Midnight is the relationship between Bronson and his daughter. And the daughter yeah, is played that's right, right. The daughter's played by Lisa Albacher, and you'll recognize her and you go, How do I know her? And and if you don't remember, she is the woman who runs the art gallery that's Eddie Murphy's friend in Beverly Hills and Beverly Hills Cop. Mm-hmm. She's that woman, but she's a little younger here. And I don't know, Bronson often has relatives that are in that are in trouble in his movies. Yeah. But for some reason this relationship and the effectiveness of the Gene Davis character kind of makes it or, or wait, is it the Andrew Stevens character? No, Andrew Stevens is the uh, is a partner. That's he's a partner, partner guy. That's right. All right. So the the Gene Davis character is so creepy and effective that you know obviously his daughter Bronson's daughter has to come into play as far as the peril factor and that relationship and how it's handled and how it's uh, portrayed really pulls me in and grounds it like you said a little bit more. But I mean, I've heard you call it. I thought I heard you guys mention it at one point on Killer POV is kind of a slasher movie. A little bit 
Yeah, I Would mean, it definitely that? could satisfy a slasher thing, but it's not got the... Actually, let me say no. The only reason I'm saying no is because I would say, in general, when you look at actually breakdown of a slasher film, uh, which we may be doing in a couple episodes, uh, <laughs> if you really look at it, it's a structural thing, often, that makes a slasher film, and this isn't structured like a slasher film. True. This is, there's not the whodunit. There's not. There's just a lot of things. This is much more in the thriller, but it definitely has slashing, and it yeah. and it's, it definitely fits more into the serial killer thrillers but it's done by canon so it's yeah. <laughs> it's just a, a lot more fun than those movies those movies don't tend to be fun i like them because i'm interested in true crime but those that type of movie tends to actually be very grim and hard to watch this is still dark but never hard to watch you're enjoying yeah. yourself because you have characters to root for yeah no there's th- it's great and then and you mentioned wilford brimley jeffrey lewis is also in the movie mm-hmm. robert lyons is in the movie it's That's just got a great supporting cast that's a great pick yeah, and and I just wanted to circle back for one second because I forgot because you just mentioned it. My number one note with uh, Emperor of the North, so just circling back for a second, was that it would make the ultimate double feature with Hard Times. Oh, yeah. The ultimate. Like, I'm not even – I like when, when you just said Hard Times, I was like – when I watched it, I was like, oh, they're both Depression era. Yeah. They both are about people on their kind of that desperate – that desperateness. I think those two movies would just – and I saw Hard Times not long ago for the first time in the theater. So it really resonated. They, they almost felt aesthetically the same, even like the cinematography is the same world almost. Yeah. No, that's a incredibly astute uh, pick. I, I couldn't agree more. I love Hard Times. Oh, it's so um, good. And that's yeah. out of print from Twilight Time. I believe. Sadly, out of print. Yes, uh, there's I just a, got it. Yeah, there's a Masters of Cinema Blu-ray overseas, but um, but yeah, I, I have that one. Um, so my number four, uh, I'm gonna go comedy, and this one I believe. Oh, it's not off that same director's list. This is actually a, something I first saw on a list of Joel Cohen's favorite films, and I think it was you know the the. What's the list they do every year, you know, every you know few years where they pick like Vertigo as the number one movie and all that stuff? Like, yeah, I mean, so the BFI, I can't Sight remember. and Sound, Sight and one. Sound. Yeah, I think it was basically the the lists that the directors give for Sight and Sound that they used to tally up the votes. I think this was Joel's list for you know I don't know 2012 or maybe it was much earlier than that. I can't even remember. It was probably earlier. And uh, this movie is called The Fortune. Come on, come on, will you hurry up? You want to know why I did it or not? I know why you did it. I know why you did it. I could drop my pants and do the same. What about me? I'd like to know why. Okay, okay, okay. Tell me in the taxi. It's private. All this whole trip, you've been more or less ignoring me. Oh, baloney. Yeah, you have. I've been mostly placed in the position of being left alone like a fifth wheel and not being made to feel like I'm included. Well, I just got married. Do you mind? Hey, I just got married. Wait a minute. No, this is no fun, and I'm not planning on putting up with it. Oh. Okay, Oscar. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. What can I say? Except that I'm... I'm glad that you brought it to my attention. I really am. Well, yeah. So you should pay some attention to the fact, you know, that after all, I'm here too. And it's from 1975. It's directed by Mike Nichols. And it was one of those where I'm like, wait a minute. F- directed by Mike Nichols, stars Jack Nicholson and Warren Beatty and Stalker Channing. And it's her first movie. And I've never seen this. What, how did I miss this one? I love Mike Nichols. And Me either. This you know, is 
Tell me more. Okay, so it's a really interesting <laughs> setup. Basically, it's a period piece. It's set in the, I want to say, 1920s. And the idea is that there's this thing called the Man Act, and it was originally passed circa 1910. It was designed to combat forced prostitution, basically. And it made it illegal to transport a woman across state lines for, quote, immoral purposes. So if a fellow wants to run off with a gal he isn't married to he could find himself in a lot of hot water because basically the law doesn't differentiate between, you know, a consensual couple versus forced prostitution. Mm. So that's the premise that sort of builds around this plot. Basically, Warren Beatty plays a married dude. Uh, I think he sells used cars. I can't remember if he does before. Or, he does definitely after the move, but basically he he's involved with Stalker Channing, and he wants to take her away to California. I forget where the movie starts, but they want to go to California. And so in order to do that, he has to find somebody to pose as her husband so that they can make this trip and not get in trouble. And it's not just... Like they, they want to sort of make sure everything's you know tightened up so he gets his buddy to actually marry her like justice of the peace marry her and then they go on the trip and that guy is this sort of loser I think he's a gambler dude played by Jack Nicholson and so that's the setup is the three of them have to you know the, the two the two Stalker Channing and Nicholson get married they fly on a plane to California and then they set up uh, in this little bungalow in California so that you know he can have his little love nest I guess basically and maybe he's gonna divorce his wife who knows but things get complicated because Nicholson plays like this incredible oaf. Like he, that's one of the things I I think people underestimate about about Nicholson is that he can play incredibly confident and, you know, just conniving and evil or whatever. But I think people forget that he can play a complete idiot as good as anybody. Mm -hmm. And he, there's things he does in this movie, like just in terms, like his hair is just this giant, you know, Afro. It's just flying off off his head in this way that you rarely see him the other thing he does is he his mouth is hanging open most of the movie and that doesn't sound like a big choice to make but if you watch it and you see him you just get a sense of a guy who just doesn't have a lot going on upstairs you know he's not like he's not like ned Beatty and like superman with to to gene hackman or anything like that he's not quite that stupid but it's it's a similar kind of character to otis like that kind of a guy but this guy is kind of a streetwise dude, so he kind of figures out some things that he can do to complicate this whole scenario. And therein lies uh, some of the comedy. And so uh, the other thing about Stalker Chang's character is that she's really rich. She comes from a rich family. And so I think that the, you know, the, the baby's motivation is not just affection. It's also like, how can I get her money? Yeah, so, so that's the setup these characters interacting with each other and Beatty just plays it like really stiff in this really funny way that I can't, I can't see I've seen him do too much. You know, he's just very sort of snooty and prim and proper about the way that he even speaks. And that combined with the sort of stupidity of Jack Nicholson's character, the two of them are just great together. I mean, obviously, you know, they would do reds 
you well, know, Jack gets his revenge in Reds because he gets to play the smoothest character yes. ever, and even even take a woman away from Beatty. Which do you know, you've heard that story, right? That's why he got the role. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's you should funny. tell that story though. Tell that story. Well, I mean, it was just that uh, Warren Beatty was trying to get Jack to do uh, the role, and I think he was he was doing something else and was kind of busy and didn't wasn't that interested in the story. I think, and uh, he said, I, "I need you in this because I need somebody that would be believably able to get the woman away from me." And <laughs> So he played to Jack's, uh, you know, ego, and that that sealed the deal. Yeah, and and then by the way, Reds is one of Nicholson's finest performances ever. Across he's the e- he's excellent, and and especially in a film that at times can be challenging if you don't know uh, as much about the context. Every time he's on screen, you get it. You get what kind of story it is, and it's yeah, he's he's really great in it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the two of them together. I mean, it's it's like when we talk about California split and George Siegel and Elliot Gould, the way that those guys play off each other. I mean, obviously they're cooler characters and you like them more, but in terms of two actors that were friendly with each other, had a chemistry, had a mutual respect for each other and were just into making a great film. They are just really killing it here in terms of the comedy. And I can see why the Coen brothers like this movie. It just gets kind of absurd and stupid and, they just they they have I think an immature side to them that I kind of love that that you don't think about that much when when it comes to their movies but um they just love stupid characters and I don't and I know a lot of people say they make fun of their characters and some but I I don't see it that way I think they just genuinely enjoy those kind of people so oh yeah I don't think they're ever making fun of anyone of any of their characters that's ludicrous uh, with those guys they love their characters you can. I agree. T- tell even though but uh yeah and you're right about jack he he really is able to play uh oaf some fools and you know even if you look at about schmidt that's somewhere in between too yeah uh yeah no he's he he had a lot more range because i mean then you look at something like the passenger and it's so minimal and restrained and he's so serious and it's just like you're like okay this is a guy you know he did need good directors though Uh, i think that was the thing about jack i don't think he was always just naturally left his own devices great i think uh he needed somebody really uh to pull that quality whatever they're looking for out of them. But uh, yeah, that's good. Interesting. I wonder why that film is not so well known. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's an availability thing or what the deal is. But between those two guys and Stockard Channing, who I absolutely adore, and Mike Nichols, you know, it just feels like it should be should be one everybody has seen. I mean, it's definitely got a similar absurdist vibe to the graduate. Not absurdist, but the, the you know the comedy that's part of the graduate. It's like that similar Mike Nichols sense of humor, but it's even more like blue collar stupider. And that's I just love to see him go there. It's great. Mm. Uh, well, my number four is one I've been wanting to talk about on multiple episodes, all our crime episodes, especially. Uh, but I knew this would come up eventually here, uh, and I was looking for a reason to rewatch it, to be honest, because it's been about 15 years since I saw it. I always highlight it as one of my favorites, uh, especially the performances. Uh, but it was really great to see it in a crystal clear transfer, and I, I guess I really understood the story a lot clearer than I did all those years ago. Uh, there's a great Czech New Wave film called Intimate Lighting that this director also did that's worth checking out, but that is Cutter's Way by director Ivan Passer from 81. I watched the war on TV just like everybody else, okay? Thought the same damn things, you know, what you thought when you saw a picture of a young woman with a baby lying face down, dead in a ditch. Two gooks. You had three reactions, Rich. Same as everybody else. The first one was real easy. I hate the United States of America. (laughs) Yeah. You see the same damn thing the next day and you move up a notch. There is no God. 
But you know what you finally say, what everybody finally says, no matter what? I'm hungry. <laughs> I'm hungry, Rich. I'm fucking starved. So you pick out somebody to blackmail him? I didn't pick him out, you did. And he isn't somebody. He's responsible. For the girl? For everything. Cutter and Bone, originally titled. Uh, this is just one of those movies where it's tour de force performances, but especially John Hurd. John Hurd is uh, one of those. These are. This is one of the couple performances he gave where you're like, this guy's the next big thing. This yep. is like your your Brando. It's just he he plays. Uh, he gets to play uh, Alex Cutter, who has no eye, no arm, uh, and base and basically no leg. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe he's got shards of a leg, but he's uh, and he, you know, uh, had fought in uh, Vietnam uh, and his buddy, his good friend who didn't fight in Vietnam and is Mr. Smooth uh, sleeping with uh, older ladies for, you know, a little bit of money here and there. Uh, and that is uh, none other than the great Jeff Bridges in a very, uh, you know, young, super attractive, smooth, but also kind of unlikable like he mm. i found him to be quite unlikable in this role and obviously purposely so like it's part of the dynamic that they have is that cutter is kind of heroically himself you know, that's the kind of the point he is who he he lives his truth right that character's truth even though he's angry and bittered he lives that even though he's drunk half the time or or more than half the time whereas uh i feel like maybe the character that bridges plays is continually lying to himself lying to everyone trying not to commit to anything any woman any person try not to get in any messy situation my memory of this film which is kind of funny, is I remembered it being a detective film, like a literal detective film, like thinking, oh, yeah, Jeff Bridges was a detective and that's his friend. But, of course, that's not the case at all. They're just kind of drifter characters. There's no – I mean they go on it. They become detective characters in a storyline, but they weren't actually detectives. So uh, basically uh, the Bridges character uh, is in his car, breaks down on the rain. It's a piece of shit car after he slept with an older woman. And in his rearview mirror he sees – uh, and he gets out of out of his car in the rain. He sees a man. He doesn't really see the man dumping the bo- body, but he sees a little bit of the man. And then later, it's revealed that there's a body uh, of a young girl dumped in this can. And he starts, you know, he he maybe has seen the guy. He he sees somebody who thinks is the guy who's somebody who's fairly powerful in the town. Uh, the cool thing about this uh, story is it's all shot in Santa Barbara and has you know this big carnival that's happening. And it's I don't know it's just a really it feels so lived in the locations that it really comes to life. And I love films where it really brings whatever that place they're filming in to a major, that becomes a character uh, of this film because you kind of feel the walls closing in on these characters uh, because they decide to try to create a blackmail kind of scheme uh, in order to, you know, root out the bad guy. But it's all being led by Cutter. And it's really about their friendship and in between them, it's it's a love triangle film uh, with, uh, you know, a great performance by uh, Lisa Eichhorn who plays Mo, who's married to Cutter, but obviously kind of Bowen always had a thing for her and he's been more or less trying to seduce her on the side this whole time, even though they're all buddies. And it's, you know, it's a bit of a mess because her feelings, she's kind of torn because Cutter's such an asshole to her. You know, he's probably purposely, he's probably trying to drive her away because he's such a broken human physically and uh, mentally. It, you know, it's, it's A, it's a great film. The performances are fantastic. The story's fun. But it's also a storyline that I feel like went on to be a real, not the realism of the story, but the kind of story it is. kind of hits all the beats that a lot of films from Beverly Hills Cop, Fletch, 
there's a lot of movies that take that yeah. the underdog then ends up at a rich person's party or home trying to take down and it could be something under the kind of reagan and i mean not even it's a little it might be a little bit before that in 81 but it feels like something the kind of people the kind of people who came back from vietnam broken against you know the elite uh it, it's so it really i feel like it is a bit of a template on the on the story structure but man that last act is freaking awesome and it goes to a really exciting fun crazy ending that you just could not you know kind of predict but it's it's a gem total yeah. gem yeah it could have could have been another seal of approval you know, we both put it on our list, so just buy it. Kind of, yeah, I, I adore Cutter's Way. Another cult movies, Danny Perry find for me. I love Number what you two. Cult you, movies, too. Yeah, and I love what you said about Santa Barbara. It's true, the location is really great and sort of stands out. It makes you go, it doesn't feel generic. I think that's one problem with a lot of thrillers is that they don't often incorporate the city or location where they are. They're, they're often kind of generic. And I'm, I'm not trying to make a blanket statement about an entire genre, but I think on the whole, sometimes a movie like that would behoove itself to embrace its environment, embrace its location. And I think there's something great about Santa Barbara being this community that supports kind of like what seems to be like a hippie fringe slash, you know, um, bohemian type person like Jeff Bridges' character and to a degree like the Cutter character but that also has like these incredible rich people who have these gigantic boats because a lot of it is about the marina and the marina area and stuff like that so I love that the location itself has great personality but also really accentuates that difference between the haves and have-nots and that helps with the tension and just the overall story uh, feels more legit to me in that way. Yeah, it has all those different levels of society within it, which is, like you said, I think that's really cool. It's, this is just one of those movies that I remember when that one got the Blu-ray treatment, I was particularly excited. And it's just funny because sometimes it takes me this long to finally rewatch something. You know, it's it, you give yourself a reason. But it, it was so much fun to, to rewatch this one. If you haven't seen this, this is one I think if you're into uh, 70s movies and you happen to have heard of this but not uh, – bit in the bullet this is one will not disappoint yeah and john heard will come up again uh later on this list um yes he will so my number three we already talked about it briefly it's emperor of the north a number one a man who lives by his wits i'm trusting you kid cover for me hey you come back here he takes what he needs and goes where he wants and always travels first class you confess in her the lord is my tabernacle and his ship is filled with gold. Well, that's out of the pearly gates. Hallelujah, brother! A number one has been everywhere, but never on the number 19, Shack's Train, where nobody rides for free and lives. Next time I pick up an empty, I'm not going to have it burned. You will never let it happen again. Never! Yeah, another one that I found through a Perry book, and I can't remember which one, if it was Guide for the Film Fanatic or what, but one of those movies that I just was like, Oh, okay. That's why I love these books that that you could point me to a movie like this that has become one of my favorite movies of all time. And what other what other movies like this are there out there that I didn't know about? But yeah, I mean there's just something about the so many things about this movie. Uh the characters we talked about the names that nobody has real names in this movie. It's Shaq is not his real name. Uh, yeah. A number cigarette. one cigarette. cigarette. Yeah. Keith Carradine's character is <laughs> known, known as cigarette. I love a movie that takes archetypes 
and still makes them interesting often because of who you cast in those roles, but also to not even bother to give them real names to kind of make them to embrace the myth of this whole story by saying, you know what, this is this guy's name. <laughs> it's not a real name, but, but for the, for the purposes of this tale, uh, this is what it's going to be. And I was listening to the commentary track, which is by film historian Dana Polin. And I really like this track. I think he's an NYU film professor or something like that. And he was talking about Aldrich and the thematics of Aldrich and like men and often machines are heading towards some ultimate battle. And you've got like gladiator figures, you know, running through his work and, you know, characters as symbols and archetypes and things like that, that I, you know, overarching academic, you know, approaches that I hadn't thought about. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? Aldrich does have that going on. I mean, that's part of the reason we like his movies is because he has this sort of kind of macho thing going through his, his stuff. But um, it's a really violent movie and it opens with like a really violent scene that you're kind of like shakes you I think at the time in 1973 when it came out, I think, it, you know, it, we were, I think we were into the rating system and everything like that. I just wanted to double check if it's actually got an R rating. I can't No, It's got a PG rating. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. um, Cause from that opening scene, I, I'm not going to spoil it, but it's very violent. And there's just a lot of violence in the movie throughout that I think was a little bit shocking even then in 1973. And if you watch it as a P I would treat it as a PG 13 at, at lowest or R-rated movie. If you're going to show your kids, you might want to watch it first. But uh, I'm going to show my kids. You know, it's it's a great movie. But but I guess it was... Sh- this is an interesting tidbit that was brought up. It was shot in Oregon. Some of the places... Some of the same locations as The General, apparently, which is kind of mm. cool. Two train oh. movies. But, you know, there are just some other interesting comments about the film throwing back to some of the great silent films... Uh, in terms of the behaviors and even there's some comedy in the movie that there's some like big reactions. There's a lot of double takes and things that you would think of as staples of silent comedy in a lot of ways or deriving from that. So the old versus young generation kind of thing is a thing that I feel like he comes back to a lot. But but the idea that he's actually aware of the silent film stuff and, and it's in there in a way that you're just like, oh yeah, I can totally see that now. You know, there's there's some big performances along with these archetypes that make it feel like more of an action movie cut from a slight bit of the silent movie cloth. I don't know. I like that about it. But then there's some other great character actors. You've got Alicia Cook Jr. You've got the great Sid Haig. You've got... Yeah, yeah, that's right. He's got a small role. you got Vic Tabak. And if you don't know Vic Tabak, he was um, Mel and uh, Mel's Diner on Alice. But he's one of my favorite character actors, and he crops up in a lot of 70s and 80s movies. So... I don't know. I'm glad that you you dug this one. It definitely was one that we hadn't talked about. But if had I known you hadn't seen it, I would have been like, "Oh, dude." I think I mentioned it to you. Well, you, 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 we probably don't remember the one time I came to your house that we watched some movies, and I think I had said, "Yeah, I haven't seen Emperor of the North, but it just came," or something like that, like something throwaway. If it's a while ago, but yeah, that's I, that's one I'm just glad to have gotten to see finally. You know, yeah, because that's not a film I had really even heard of. No, it's it's definitely which one surprising. Yeah, again. Not even more so than Mike Nichols, which yeah. I, I can oh. get how you'd miss a Mike, not you, but I guess how some yeah. people would miss a Mike Nichols movie. But Aldrich, this guy directed The Dirty Dozen, you know? I mean, like, why don't well, we... And also Lee Marvin. Yeah, I mean, and, I just, and I Lee Marvin. I feel like I know all of Lee Marvin's great, like even finding Prime Cut years ago yeah. when I discovered that. I was like, how did I not hear about Prime Cut earlier? Yeah. And it's been even longer. I hadn't heard of this one. So, And he's great in this. Yeah. I mean, he he really feels like 
that character. Oh my know? gosh. He the scenes he has with with Keith Carradine are are just yeah. outstanding. And mm-hmm. you know, you can you can transpose the whole generational thing to I guess us versus millennials or whatever you want to call it now and it still kind of works. There's still kind of this attitude of the younger generation that has it all figured out and that doesn't need the help of this older generation and the older generation that just thinks the younger generation is a joke. And, you know, I mean, that's just a funny thing that that's been going on for so long and continues to this day. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm just well, and that both are forgetting there's a common enemy. Yes. At yes. the top of that pyramid, which is, you know, the man, whatever the man is. Every generation has the man, you know? That's true. And the 1%. And, and, and the guy who's kind of controlling that has no real reason to like it's not like he's getting rich from being uh, on the train service he just maybe has become grown sadistic and enjoys being a a, you know a jailer almost so yeah it's it borgnine's very good in just getting being kind of delirious glee you know at at being cruel it's It's, pretty great it's a tough thing to watch if you were used to a certain kind of jovial yeah you know goofy borgnine because he's straight up evil in this movie like really and i love that about him because i love that he can play all that stuff you know yeah no totally uh no that's a good one i'm glad well i'm glad we had an overlap for a change we never we never really do even though it's not really an overlap because it's a a new watch my number three is the as soon as we said we're doing twilight time the first thing that ever went on my list and and i didn't want to reveal it when we were talking earlier but i actually believe my first this was the first film i bought from twilight time and it was already out of print and i had to pay a decent amount for it but it was absolutely worth it i think it's uh, one of the best looking movies ever filmed it is my favorite uh one of my favorite female performances of all time and that is leave her to heaven shocked aren't you if you were having the baby you'd love it well i never wanted it richard and i never needed anything else now this how can you say such wicked things sometimes the truth is wicked the starring roles of gene tierney long ago revealed her as an incomparable dramatic artist. But in the part of Ellen in Lever to Heaven, she gives one of the truly great dramatic performances of our time. Of the devastatingly beautiful Ellen, it was said, she would cheat, lie, deceive, stop at nothing to make the man she loved her exclusive possession. By director John M. Stahl, 1945. Just one of my favorite movies period i saw this in film school when i wasn't as into classical uh, movies i was into other stuff and i was in a film class where i had this teacher and he was an unusual guy he was best friends with elizabeth taylor and montgomery clift and he was an assistant director in that period so he was an ad on a lot of their movies and him and him and uh, uh elizabeth taylor were really close uh and he would uh, this class was really simple he would just sit down he's one of those guys who wasn't really a teacher he was like you know he's like 70 years old you'd sit down and he would just pull out a vhs <laughs> i don't even think they're dvds uh and he would just show you a classic movie and, and some he had some context to like in his life and some he just showed it and, and would tell a story and then that was the end of class and it there was a few that were just amazing but of all the movies he showed me this one i just couldn't i, I i'd seen laura in the same class and lo- i think laura's just a brilliant movie it's it's a, it's a perfect movie in noir this is i like this movie more but it's not as perfect uh, and this is Jean Tierney is probably my favorite, uh, one of my favorite presences on a movie screen. I think she's the most beautiful face ever filmed. I think she, it's just completely ravishing. And this in this particular movie, she is 
cold and somewhat psychopathic uh and she just doesn't even need to do anything at times and you know she's radiating and uh, emoting so much uh through her visage uh anyway this is it's just a really brilliant film it's a really simple uh almost melodrama twisted melodrama kind of like an opera but it's 100 percent a film noir and it falls under that category scorsese had of the color noirs uh like desert fury and, and other films uh, uh it was shot on three strip technicolor so it's particularly beautiful uh a, rare, a fairly rare process so it's basically a writer uh cornell wild uh falls in love with uh, a young socialite they meet on a train she ditches the guy she was going to go off with to be with him it's very quick and then it basically is a story of obsessive love where she wants to control him every moment of his time, even wants him to give up writing. Just, you know, you can just live off the money just so I can be with you and your presence all the time. But he also has kind of a, a sick brother, a uh, younger brother who he has to look after, who becomes a point of a drain on her you know, time with this writer. So she, you know, starts thinking uh, it might be easier to not have him in her life. And there is one of the most famous scenes i won't completely spoil it but it's one of the most famous scenes in cinema history so if you haven't even heard of it uh you know of uh this boy swimming and her being nearby in a boat and it's one of the best scenes i've ever seen in a movie but also one of the hardest to watch she's incredible in it because it's so cold and it's just an incredible performance this this whole movie uh, and and most fun of all the guy she jilts to marry cornell wilde is vincent price oh, so yeah. so when you forget that vincent who's also in laura so yeah, I was gonna say both. Yeah. you should really watch this and Laura close together, yeah, just because I think it's because one is beautiful black and white auto preminger noir, yeah. uh, and Laura is you know the she plays the Jean Tierney plays the title character of Laura, and um, she's a much different character than she is in Leave Her to Heaven, and, and the, the fact that the two are black and white in color, just the dichotomy between the two characters and the two looks, and yet both film noirs. It's just a really interesting thing to watch them close together. And Laura leaves you wondering who she is for most of the movie. I mean, that's the fascinating thing about it. It's a it's a build up to who is Laura. It's it's a brilliant, brilliant film. But the, the Leave Her to Heaven is like it's all the best stuff I would like about Douglas Sirk film in terms of the way it looks and the kind of content. But it's darker and and it's much more in line with the things you would love about a film noir. So that's why I think it'll really resonate with a lot more people maybe uh, than some of Sirk's work. Uh, and also New Mexico, it, it made me literally want to go to New Mexico. Like I remember looking at the way it was shot, photographed and going, I need to go there. And then sure enough, I went there and thought it was the best, probably my favorite place in America. Just gorgeous kind of sky. And this movie's complete magic. And it was one of the first films I hunted down and was willing to part with more money than I would normally just to have it. I, uh, I, I know there's always questions over the best possible transfer that because of the technicolor process, there's probably there, uh, somebody could probably still do a even better transfer over certain parts of this, but you know, it's easily the best out there. It's, and it's really magic. Yeah, no, I love this movie. Excellent choice. And I'm glad we got some classic films in there. Cause uh, I don't, Spoiler alert, I don't have any more of them on my list. Yeah, that was the only one I put in it's just great. because it, it's, yeah, it means a lot to me, that one. I, I like the variety. Um, okay, so on to my number two. If you want to understand how we feel about John Hurd and why we think he is one of the great, and I think you'd probably agree with this, I think one of the great actors of the 1980s, you need only see Cutter's Way and my number two, Chilly Scenes of Winter to get a sense of why we feel that way. What do you want? What do I want? I want to marry Laura, that's what I want. I thought everybody knew that. 
Charles loves Laura. Laura likes Charles. I want to sleep with you. Wait a minute. Charles would marry Laura tomorrow. Wait a minute. <laughs> But Laura's already married to a guy called Ox. Joan Micklin Silver's chilly scenes of winter. <laughs> Because it's just one of those things where you, if you don't see those two movies, like you can see some of his other, there's another really good, Joan Micklin Silver, the director of this film, did a movie called Between the Lines before this, with also with John Hurd, also fantastic in that movie. So if you see that, that's icing on the cake. But if if you watch Chilly Scenes and Cutter's Way, and then you just think about how people perceive John Hurd, which is that they perceive him as either the dad from Home Alone or they perceive him as the, you know, dickish guy in Big who doesn't like Tom Hanks's character and is kind of pissed off and scared for his job when he shows up and starts coming up with all these ideas and stuff like that. So you, or, or if they're horror fans, it's Chud. <laughs> or Chud, yes, exactly. So those three, like if you just take those three, and they're, and they're all fine performances for what they are, but you would never go, oh, that guy's one of the greatest actors of the 1980s based on no, those they're like three. real they're just like they're just like great good performances yeah they're, they're just nitty- this is more like transformative character work yeah yeah this is this is character work in a leading also the, these kind of movies don't get made that much so that's another reason why you know a guy there may be other guys like herd that would have done really well but this kind of movie where you have a character actor role out front as a lead role just doesn't happen that much. So anyway, I just found it so interesting to me that like I went, I was going through my normal life thinking of John Hurd, like most people think of John Hurd. And then I saw Cutter's Way and then I saw Chilly Scenes and I was like, holy shit, this guy, what, how did I ever not know? It's like you stepped into another dimension for a second. It's almost like that kind of, that's how good he is in both of these movies. And let me just interject with one thing. Uh, Cutter's Way is the, performance you would notice because he's transformed physically looks so radically different and he just gets to go crazy and it's like so intense and that's the one where everyone will be like oh this guy's a star chili scenes is the even better performance it really is it is for playing the normal and big quote marks for this character (laughs) he is astounding yeah i mean just briefly i'll set it up and then i totally want to get your take on it but the idea is it's well it's based on a really good book actually one of my favorite books which i went out and read after i saw the movie the author, her name is Anne Beattie, and the the book is also Chilly Scenes of Winter. It's the movie, I guess you could say it's kind of like Annie Hall, except not funny. It's like Samuel Beckett. You know, I admire the technique, but it, it doesn't it doesn't hit me on a gut level. I'd like to and hit this guy on a gut that, level. Stop it, Albie. <laughs> and that's not really fair because there are funny moments in it too, but the way that it handles a narrative, which is basically about one guy who can't get over the this woman that he dated and is obsessed with her and it sort of flashes back through their relationship and so you so you, you're jumping around in time through how they met are you nuts no completely normal what's your name i'm mr patterson i'll call Jeanette when the other file comes in you're not going to tell me your name yeah i'll tell you my name It's Laura. Laura, what a... What a beautiful name. No, I wasn't going to say that. I wasn't going to say what a beautiful name. I was going to say, what a coincidence. What is? That your name is Laura. My name is Charles. I don't get it. What's a coincidence? There isn't any. Just wanted to tell you my name. 
<laughs> Charles what? Richardson. Laura what? Connolly. What a beautiful name, Connolly. Yeah, Connelly. it's lovely. Uh, I have to get back to work. Oh. Bye, Charles. Well, bye, Laura. Nice meeting you. It was, wasn't it? <laughs> and then this present day thing that's going on with them but it's got some great stuff in that like i said herd is just amazing he's like charming but kind of creepy there's definitely some things he does in the movie that are very creepy like you if you were to make this film today i feel like it would get destroyed because this character would just come off as completely unsympathetic and psychotic but i feel like he's not that it's also impressive that a woman directed it and that the character is written by a female novelist because I feel like it's a pretty damn good look into the soul of men. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really do. Like, and, and even though uh, what you're saying is completely true, like if about a modern version of him, part of that is just some of the things he says yeah. as well. And I feel like some of that was the time. Certain things, you'll see other 70s movies where some people talk like that, it, you know, in a way, like I think he uses the, the word, like I'm going to rape you to, to a person in a way that's totally not sinister, but coming from this dark place where it's used, where if that was in a modern movie, yeah, it would mean exactly what he's saying it would be like oh my god but there's something about the way it's used in this movie as part of this dialogue that is is antiquated but i get it what the way they're talking you know yeah it does it does serve to inform us something about his character and how how emotionally he is attached to this woman played by mary beth hurt by the way but it the other cool things it does is the bouncing around in time i love and the, the there are moments of him breaking the fourth wall, which mm. is certainly something that's not new to cinema, but I do like it when it's done well, and it's done just sparingly enough in this movie that it it, it just makes him more charming and more endearing, and that, that kind of thing kind of pulls you into the story a little bit more and and i love that but what was your what were your thoughts on it what did you think I mean this is one that I know you're concerned. Well, okay, so first, the Concern, title... Concern, maybe a little strong, but, I mean, Bill Ackerman, our friend Bill Ackerman, was on yes. the, the projection booth about it, and... Well, he... and then I heard that it was a four-and-a-half-hour episode, so I was like, what is this movie? I also yeah. thought it was like a... The title and the cover and everything about it, and not the original poster cover, which we'll talk about in a second, all of that made me think it was like a Bergman movie. Mm. And so I wasn't, and which I, you know, I like those kind of movies, but I wasn't like in a hurry to see it because it felt like something that I could tell what it was before I saw it. And sometimes that takes me a while to get around to because I'm like, okay, I know what that is. And then when I watch it, I'm like, okay, it's it's like there's no way you could have predicted that was the movie. It, was, it is. It's, it's, it's strange. It's funny. It's dark. It's very real in the relationship sense. It's, uh, he's a character you like, like watching and you're kind of rooting for him, but you're also concerned that he might not be all there. Uh, his fa- especially because one of my favorite things about the movie in general is one of my favorite actresses of all time plays his mom, who's crazy, yeah. Laurie Graham, from one of both of our favorite movies of all time, In a Lonely Place. Yes. So that was super exciting to see her there, but also that she's playing like an actress, for one. So that was cool. But somebody who's actually kind of lost her mind. 
And so it makes you think, well, that can also be genetic. So maybe there's also something not quite all there with him. But then he's also just kind of like us. Like I felt like I'm, it could be similar to him in some ways when I'm watching it. So it, it's also those like Philip Roth books. And he's just like one of those characters who seems like he's from a, a certain place in literature. Uh, you know what? I was totally floored by it. I mean, the, the idea of something being overhyped is with a lot of movies we're probably talking about today. I'm not concerned about that. I just it won't be not all of these will be for everyone. But this is not a film I, I think could necessarily be overhyped in that way because I think it's so interesting and surprising. But the big one, the big thing I would say that I thought was interesting is that it's so close. That's a superior movie for sure, but so close to high fidelity in its structure. Mm. It's, it, it, it look it uses time flashbacks in high fidelity. It's all about his relationship ending at the start. He t- he breaks the fourth wall. Top five things I miss about Laura. One sense of humor very dry but it can also be warm and forgiving and she's got one of the best all-time laughs in the history of all-time laughs she laughs with her entire body two she's got character or at least she had character before the ian nightmare she's loyal and honest she doesn't even take it out on people when she's having a bad day that's character three i miss her smell and the way she tastes it's mystery of human chemistry and i don't understand it some people as far as your senses are concerned just feel like I really dig how she walks around. It's like she doesn't care how she looks or what she projects, and it's not that she doesn't care, it's just she's not affected, I guess. And that gives her grace. And five, she does this thing in bed when she can't get to sleep, she kind of half moans and then rubs her feet together an equal number of times, it just kills me. Believe me, I mean, I could do a top five things about it that drive me crazy, but it's just your garden variety, women, you know, schizo stuff, and. That's the kind of thing that got me here. He's a similar kind of character who's unpleasant, yet you like him. And yet, so my guess is, because I've read High Fidelity, the book, before I saw the movie, and I love it. It's one of my favorite books of all time. Great but book. it's very different. It's a very different character because the book's much more about, like, you know, uh, an obsessive, uh, you know, list maker and a lot of the things you can't necessarily do in a movie. So I feel, I honestly feel like, and I'd love to hear from uh, the director, I'd love to know if he basically took the book and then took chili scenes and kind of merged the two. Cause that's what I would think high fidelity is based on. Uh, even though honestly, and I love high fidelity actually, but chili scenes is a better movie and you know, it's exciting. Look, man, it's movies like this and quite a few on this list too, that when I discover one at this stage, when you really have seen a lot of movies, uh, that keeps you going, you know, just that's it. Keeps you going, keeps you going, man. Always something around the corner that just will make you go, wow, movies. You know, so many different types of movies that are so interesting, especially in the 70s. I think there's just so many surprising because the rules weren't were different. Like right now, it's really hard, you know, except for the independent world, which you don't have a lot of money in to make a bigger film. But, you know, there was a time where they were putting actual money into movies like this and stories that were unusual or eccentric or made by artists or movies like Sorcerer and it and to to think of that as anything but the true golden period of this as an art form is crazy. This is the this is the period where people were really getting to do their thing. And so when we get to discover these it feels uh, very special and this one is a lot of fun. I have a friend who I uh, oh this is a quick plug I'll plug because it's one of my favorite movies I haven't been able to discuss here yet the swimmer I was on the projection booth you know just this last episode talking about the swimmer and the friend who rented that with me years ago when I totally fell in love with that movie probably in the same way you feel about chili scenes I kind of felt when I first saw the swimmer and I sure you do too uh, 
and we watched that together. And this this friend of mine hasn't seen this, and he probably listens to Alex to this. Uh, I, as soon as I saw, I just wrote to him and said, "I just saw a movie that was literally like everything you love in one movie, like everything. <laughs> like he will like it even more than I will. Like it is like his perfect. And seeing that is exciting too. When you know you then get that thing you can then pass on to another person." It was pretty exciting. So yeah, man, chilly scenes. What a what a little revelation, a little gem of a film that I was. It is not what it looks like in the cover. And the reason I said it had a previous title, Head Over Heels. Yeah, well, that's a different cut of the movie too. There's like the uh, I don't want to spoil it too much, but there's a happy ending version uh, of the movie, yeah. and then there's the real ending. And I don't want to say what the real ending is. It's not necessarily unhappy. It, it could be, but anyway. So that's well, like, I'd say realistic. Realistic, yeah. The that's situation, a good way, yes. Yeah. But the poster is like yeah, it's insanely ridiculous. goofy. It's like yeah. it looks like it actually looks like um, literally looks like Better Off Dead. Yeah, it does. Like it's, feel... it's got the guy with like he's he's looking through binoculars or something. No, he's and... got glasses on that have windshield oh, wipers on them. Oh my god, which is ridiculous. It's a stupid. Yeah, I don't. It's just one of those things where I think a studio really had no clue what to do with this movie, and I get it because it's it's not totally conventional and sellable in a, in a certain way, but man, is it effective. And I was thinking about your comparison to high fidelity, which is f- fucking spot on. That's really great. And one of the things I love about high fidelity is it's, it is about that relationship, but it's also about John Cusack's relationship with side characters, like the guys that work at the record shop and how great those scenes are. This movie has that too. I mean, it has John Hurd lives with his sister and, I love his friend. His friend Peter is Peter so Riegert. Yeah, Peter Riegert oh, is is fantastic. So I, one of these great underrated actors. He's in another Joan Micklin Silver movie called Crossing Delancey, which is also really great. Which is him courting Amy Irving, New York. It's a very ethnic kind of thing, but it's a fantastic movie. But another showcase for Peter Riegert. But so they have a great rapport, and then there's this whole other relationship between John Hurt's character and Gloria Graham's boyfriend i guess oh, that's right yeah the guy dating his mom who's isn't he the bad guy from dune yes ken mcmillan he's, he's amazing and he's McMillan, yeah. one of the great character actors one of those guys that got started acting really late i think he also plays um meg ryan's dad who runs the security company in armed and dangerous that's that's why i always remember him from he's he's in tons of stuff but ken mcmillan is really great and they have this certain like it's not like Ken McMillan is obsessed with John Hurd's character the way he's obsessed with his ex-girlfriend, but Ken McMillan really wants to be liked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's you know? a personality type, I think. Totally. But, he, but it's great because he's picked the wrong guy. Yeah, he's picked the wrong guy, and, and, and it's just it's great that these other dynamics are at play. It makes the movie feel fuller. It makes the movie feel more realistic in some ways because it's not just, you know, the main thrust is certainly about Charles and Laura, his, you know, his girlfriend ex-girlfriend and but i just love those other little relationships and how well heard plays against all those people and how much the chemistry is perfect between so many of them he and gloria graham and you know anyway i couldn't be happier that you liked it because uh it's just one of my favorites one of my very favorite films. i would probably say maybe since doing the show might be my favorite discovery like that's the one we'll have to we'll have to sit down and go since doing pure cinema the ones we've stumbled upon definitely my favorite of the ones from you so far but largely i haven't had a chance to watch a lot of the ones like there's there's definitely a growing list a lot of them are more classics or the musicals or you know but there we definitely need to do a show where it really is just five each that we have just spent that time looking at uh, ones the other hasn't seen but this was a great start to that very cool 
um, and one people will uh, enjoy. My number two, it could also literally be called Chili Scenes of Winter. It's a perfect title for it. Uh, this is a movie that, again, uh, these movies, a lot of these films actually on the, both our lists, I think, are movies that studios didn't know what the fuck to do with and made no money and get more or less buried. And uh, this is one of those titles that when I met Nick Redmond, uh, we were talking about movies and we're kind of just like gushing. This is a couple years ago. And I said to him, man, you know what? I would love more than anything for you guys to release would be Eureka by Nicholas Rogue. The truth is, you want me, you want my soul. I don't believe in chance. What are you smiling at? The moment Jack McCann discovered gold, he died. And that moment lasted a lifetime. And he told me we are. And it was one of those great, it was like off, off air. And it blew my mind because anyone who knows me well knows that Nick Rogue is really one of my, maybe my favorite director in terms of the small run of movies that he had, maybe five. And I've talked about it here with Bad Timing. And, uh, and I'm sure I'll get to, and, we, and Man Who Fell to Earth. Uh, but Eureka is one, I think Eureka is the best of his la- later films. This is like his last it's almost a masterpiece. It, it falls just short of being what I'd call a flat-out stone-cold masterpiece, uh, but it's still a great movie. And it's from 83, and it's it, it opens in the Arctic. It's 1925. Jack McCann, played by Gene Hackman, at the absolute power. He's just a total powerhouse in this movie. It's one of his great roles. And he's a guy who wants to be alone. He's like It opens with him like literally pushing and fighting uh, his partner saying, I don't want a partner. I want, I'm going to discover gold by myself. This is, you know, uh, Jack McCann's never needed another man. Say it, say it. I mean, you're watching it going, what the fuck? You, like, that's the opening. You don't even know who he is. And he's been uh, mining for gold all this time. He's totally alone. So basically this movie, to put it in a context of what kind of movie it is, it is very close to There Will Be Blood and Citizen Kane. Between those movies, this movie it falls exactly into the same world as those two, which I also have a lot of overlaps. A little closer to There Will Be Blood uh, in terms of maybe the darkness of the of the tone, but it has the it goes to the opulence of Kane as well. So uh, basically, he's a prospector. He is out looking in the middle of nowhere. It's just gorgeous. This film. He goes to a whorehouse where he has obviously had this relationship with this pro- head of the prostitutes, and she's also kind of like a maybe a psychic or a spiritualist and she's kind of seen something in a crystal ball and she t- she's predicted that he will find everything he's looking for but and then she leaves the butt hanging but she's like but after and he doesn't care about that and then you know he leaves her uh, you know he spends a night with her and then he goes out looking and he literally tumbles into the you know the biggest claim imaginable like he literally falls into this cavern it's one of the most beautifully shot sequences oh greed is another movie that i'd lump into this this kind of type of movie and he falls into this cavern where everything's glittering with gold and just you know it's like a flood of gold so he literally becomes one of the richest uh, men in the world and and it has one of those hard cuts from the first part of this movie which is like 20 minutes segment of him as a prospector and it's just hard where he's probably like 30 and it just hard cuts and with with nick rogue that means you know a perfect graphic match you know on something and it cuts to him as like a 70 year old man 
uh, one of the richest men, owns his own island in the Bahamas, and that's where he lives. And we're talking to his daughter, Teresa Russell. So it's it literally jumps that amount of time from the prospector guy to the guy who is basically Kane. It's basically the Kane character. Um, there's one scene I want to mention before that, though. It's one of the most incredible moments I've ever seen in any movie, and, and especially on a visual side, so I don't think it's really spoiling it. But it's just before he he discovers gold, he walks through a the mining town, which is desolate, and everyone's kind of given up, and it looks just like everyone's barren. And he walks along, and outside the claim the place where you claim your uh, your fortune, there's a guy just lying there with a Joker-like smile on his face, and he it looks like he's frozen to death, and he's wearing no shoes in the snow. And he just smiles, and, and Hackman's just like, what are you looking at? And and the guy keeps smiling, and you realize he's alive, which is kind of surprising. And, he, and then he slowly reaches into his pocket, pulls out a gun, and puts it in his mouth. And then when he pulls the trigger, it cuts to like fireworks in the sky and this like almost cosmic dance of light and it, it's just it's it, nicholas rogue is one of those directors that when he got ideas right and and temporal time cuts which is what he does essentially he cuts through time and and creates meanings uh through images where there weren't images on their own didn't have a meaning when he combines them juxtaposes he's creating whole new cinematic kind of language it, there's moments in this movie as good as everything he's ever done all the characters i had a sense that they were all it's a terrible word, symbols, but as in, as in um, some great play, let's say, the daughter, the father, the wife, the husband, the young husband, rather, rather um, extraordinary, more extraordinary, larger than life. And McCann was a man who was um, single-mindedly wanted to be more than his own person, but... Um, to thank no one. And then the bigger picture starts to form. So you've got this guy who's now is super rich. He has uh, Teresa Russell from Bad Timing, and who was married to Rogue at the time, as his daughter, who's very much like him. She's meant to be very similar. Ed Lauder is really good as kind of a snively, you know, kind of sidekick. He's not his partner, but he's always trying to broker deals. Uh, he's a bit of a pathetic character. Uh, Rooker Hauer. I mean, this is a powerhouse of cast. Rooker Hauer, you know, right before Blade Runner, uh, as a uh, the, as the boyfriend of Teresa Russell, who Gene Hackman despises, he's he's kind of a kind of a playboy, know-it-all, uh, pretentious kind of just a very kind of very very unlikable character, but very sexual. You know, it's all about sex with his relationship with Teresa Russell. Uh, and then uh, and then later on, you have Mickey Rourke and uh, Joe Pesci as these kind of gangsters from florida who want to make a deal with him and he's no not interested in any deals he's like i'm not selling anything forget them he has no interest in kind of playing ball uh and it kind of builds into uh like you know it's it's a it's a hard one not to do spoilers so i'll, I'll try not to but it b builds into something super violent and the movie changes dramatically in the last act it becomes a very different movie in the last act and not as good a movie uh, it's still good but it's not great the first two-thirds are total masterpiece and it's very it's purposely different it's just that kind of story uh so it has to kind of go there but it, you'll you know you'll know what the kind of there will be blood type of film what kind of thing but he, he mixes 
cosmic connections of chance, fate, death, the magic religion. Like it has every kind of religion mentioned at some point, whether the Judaism, uh, you see a voodoo, uh, you see a voodoo ceremony at one point, uh, traditional religion, uh, magic. I mean, it's, they all kind of get blended into the splendor of ideas. What's cool about it is it's largely, so Paul Mayer's, uh, Mazerberg is the uh, writer of this, but he also wrote, uh, the man who fell to earth. So it has that same sprawling, time narrative that that film has but i actually think this is the superior film to be perfectly honest Rewatching this crit- i hadn't seen it since vhs so it it was always a little tricky to find then it had it there was a dvd that was okay but this blues blu-ray you know really is the way to see this movie and it's based uh almost beat for beat which i didn't know when i saw it the first time i didn't know much about this until watching this time films based on a speculation a real life a gold prospector who became a really rich philanthropist called Sir Harry Oakes, who was found in his mansion in the Bahamas, uh, brutally murdered, and the case was unsolved. Uh, so there's a lot of that to be gleaned from it. Read into that as you will. Pretty interesting from from the more once you watch this movie, start reading up about it. Pretty interesting to see the liberties they took and the things they actually kind of uh, doubled down on for this movie. But uh, it has. Saying I've been telling people about this movie for years, uh, especially because of one line. I always say it's my favorite line in movies. So that's pretty bold. But I think I've even said it on here before to you. But it's a line where Hackman says this is later Hackman. So when he's uh, super rich and he just you get the feel and it ties into saying Rogue. I'll, I'll mention that Rogue said about it. But he said uh, he, he, this is the quote. He says, I used to have it all. Now I just have everything. And it's just a perfect line in cinema it's a guy who used to have it all because he was poor but he had the search he had the hunger for gold he was hungry he had something to live for this this passion and now he literally owns everything and has nothing to, like who cares like what does he do every day and so that line i used to have it all now i just have everything is like for me i don't go to the cinema for lines i'm not a dialogue guy necessarily even though there's, i appreciate great dialogue i go for images i go for that line has so much depth to it. It just kind of blows my mind. And I found a quote uh, by Nick Rogue that I just wanted to mention. And when he talked about the film, he says, uh, I was initially interested in a character who wanted to satisfy an all-consuming desire. That's what I want. But when he gets it, what happens after his brief ecstatic moment? Nothing more than leftover life to kill. And I thought that's pretty interesting. So a guy who all he wants is to claim gold, become rich, and then he becomes rich and who cares? It, it's meaningless, and which is very feels very much like Kane and uh, definitely There Will Be Blood in terms of the oil strike. I have never heard PTA talk about this movie. I'd be very – I'm sure he saw it, even though it's quite a different uh, – the first act's similar. Um, it, it's, it really is a special movie and, and, and I don't think a lot of people give it any time. I, I don't even really hear it mentioned when people talk about Rogue's best few films. It's, it's, it should be reappraised. And, uh, I was, you know, this is one of the ones I was most happy that Twilight Time put out and, uh, excited for people to discover this for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. This is a amazing epic of a movie and why I never, <laughs> You always do this, and I love it. You, you just tie it into a movie that totally makes sense, and the there will be blood. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's crazy. It's like it's not like you can look at it and go, "Oh my gosh, he owes Nick Rogue Rogue some money." It's <laughs> not like that, but it's but when you see it, you and you know he's a fan of it. It's just I I just googled it just to kind of see if it ever came up in a text interview or somewhere, and there's no 
nothing I could find in a cursory hmm. glance of, of him mentioning it himself. There's other people attributing what you're saying, but I'm surprised because he usually owns you know a lot of his influences, but maybe because that movie really was such a big deal in terms of his career, I think a lot of people still say it's his best movie ever, although I don't feel that way about it. But um, oh, I, sh- I showed it again recently to class. I think it's the best film post-2000, best film made, like, yeah. period. Like, watching it again made me realize I loved it in theaters, hadn't seen it again till last year, and when I saw it again, showing people, I'm like, this is, you know, one of the best films ever made. Like, really think that. Yeah, it's, I understand. It's something, yeah. Yeah, I understand what the, everything it gets. And so that all that being said, that it has such gravitas in his canon, it's, it's maybe, I can understand why you wouldn't want to be like, oh, well, actually... I took a ton of inspiration from this Nick Rogue movie. Um, he really want he you know it just feels like the kind of movie you want to you know he he already is basing it on loosely on the up oil. To the oil yeah. book and some other things. So I think to add that other really important piece in the mix would especially be, the character of Jack yeah, McCann yes. because they're both they're both likable and then deeply unlikable like there's scenes where you really like their both characters like cuz their performances are so good but they're also really cruel and kind of unpleasant men I have a competition in me I want no one else to succeed I hate most people I look at people and I see nothing worth liking I want to earn enough money I can get away from everyone. You think my name on that stupid piece of paper means you get it? Nobody gets anything. There's nothing I can give you, leave you, or will you. For years, people have been saying to me, Jack, you gotta make a will. You gotta make a will. No! There is no last will and testament for Jack McCann. Where I come from, you don't own a thing. What you can do is take your claim. And... Yeah, no, it's it's yeah. There's definitely there's definitely a lot uh, of connection there, but they're such different directors, and that's one of the things. Like the thing I love about uh, PTA's movie, it's just the scale and and the performance and the the aesthetic, right? They all go together. But but Rogue is so much more interesting a filmmaker in the sense that he is not playing. He doesn't play shit safe, man. Rogue is like his movies can be a fucking mess because of the things he's putting together. These ideas he's layering on each other when that doesn't work it doesn't work hard and when it works you're like this guy's reinventing what these what movies can be because not many people will do that and and whereas pta you know long takes and stuff like that that's not risky you know what i mean like boogie nights i feel like at times was risky uh, magnolia takes some crazy risks narratively I think, but i think story-wise he's taking risks you know something like yeah. the master and things like that where you yeah, know yeah but Just I'm not with visually, you. Not yeah visually. i'm with you he and nick rogue are two very different guys you yeah know. very different and and so i I think they are great uh, together, but Eureka is just, it's just, yeah, it's just like, I also like, like in later period, I think Castaway has some nice moments by Nick Rogue, but, but none of them have the scale again, probably because this movie didn't do well. And, and, you know, so after this, he's probably, you know, largely working on, you know, receding budgets. Uh, I think if this film had come out at a different time, it would have done really well. It kind of came out right. I was uh, reading an interview with them. It, it came out right when Thatcher was elected, which means, you know, around the same time as Reagan and just very conservative governments and this you know this is a pretty crazy movie so 
Uh, anyway, I, I'm looking forward to people who discover, get to discover this one. And also just a great Gene Hackman role. And oh. if you watch this movie thinking maybe it was a precursor to Lex Luthor, then maybe it's a better movie. <laughs> Although I think this came out after. That. But, <laughs> I know. But, but regardless, <laughs> I like, love oh, it. Oh, yeah, you're right. Well, I love, I love the, idea. the idea that it was, uh, he, this is how he got rich. Oh, no, like, that's <laughs> such a cool thing, man. That's super cool. Yeah, great, great choice. I'm so glad they put it out. Again, the kind of movie that I love that Twilight Time is aware of. And is like, yep, that's one of ours. We're gonna do that. And I, I don't know. I that curated quality is is pretty exceptional. You know, one of the reasons I love them so much. Um, so on to my number one, all which right. is actually legit one of my very favorite movies of all time. And I know I say that a lot, but let me differentiate. Very favorite movies of all time is above great fucking movie. It's above, you know. One of my favorites. This is like a top 20 movie for me. Now, uh, top 20, top 10? Depends on the day, but it yeah, could yeah. it could creep into my 10. It really my, could. My number one is in this ballpark, exact same ballpark, where it probably is in the 10 normally. Yeah. So, yeah. I You know, yeah. the, if I, I have to reevaluate the 10 every few years and kind of go, okay, where's, where do things land now? But um, Maybe could, every year we should do, a, at the end of each physical year of doing our show, we should do our top 10 year top all time, you know, top 10 each and, and then see, see how it changes. changes yeah. Year. I, I love that idea. I feel like I've heard that mentioned somewhere and I just think it's such a great idea because especially because you, if you don't know what those other 10 films in the top 20 are that could maybe creep in, that's the kind of stuff. It's fun to see stuff get, bumped around and rejiggered and i love that. and they're not they're not always our handshake movies that was the cool thing about our handshake list even though i feel like they probably are mostly in our say our top 10 the interesting thing about a list uh, the handshake was they're more like they kind of are in your dna and your fabric but sometimes when you sit down to do a top 10 certain things change and uh alter and, and one thing we forgot before we get into this is we forgot to talk about john hurd in both of our uh one of our favorite movies after hours oh we yeah were, so before we totally forget, that's where some of our listeners will, you know, recognize a great little, you know, great small performance uh, in that one. But as the bartender, but oh god, so good, so good. Um, all right, all right okay, number so one. my number one. Sorry, all that build up. Uh, it's Breaking Away from 1979. Oh yes. Enrico Gimonde spends eight hours a day training to be the finest racer in all of Italy. But Enrico has a problem. He's not in Italy. He's in Bloomington, Indiana. Papa! Ciao, Papa! And he's not Enrico Giamonde. I should have hit him when I had the chance. He'd be dead now. Oh, grazie, Tante Santa Maria. He's Dave Stoller. He was as normal as pumpkin pie. And now, look at him. But Dave's not crazy. He's never tired. He's never miserable. He's on the road to adulthood. When I was young, I was tired and miserable. Yeah, it's just, it's it's a movie that is more and more, I realize, like, just me. It's just got a ton of me in it. And I can't, I'm, I can't even sort of disentangle that completely at this point. But the it's from 1979. It's directed by Peter Yates, who did things like Bullet, the Friends of Eddie Coyle. He did Eyewitness, which I mentioned on a show a while back. And he also did Crawl, which is crazy to me to think. My favorite of those kind of fantasy movies. Of it's, all time. it's definitely up there for me, too. I think people forget that Crawl I take is, that over Lord of the Rings any day of the week. 
I might have to agree with you in terms of what I would rather watch right now. I would rather watch Crawl. So don't people don't hate on us. It's just <laughs> I like Crawl. What can I say? So anyway, uh, Yates is a great director. A lot of sort of range as far as what he does. I don't think I've ever wanted to copy anybody. Um, I think it's very dangerous in film. I mean, film. The danger I think of film. I think we went through a whole period when. You know, every time an Antonioni picture came out or a Fellini picture came out, everyone used to go and say, you know, great shot. Do you see how this went from here to there to here? Uh, in my book, shots come from the movement of the actors, and the movement of the actors comes from the script. I.e., it should all be part of an organic whole. And so this story is really, really so touching. It's, the idea is it deals with Indianapolis, and the there's a Indiana University is is in sorry it's not in Indianapolis it's in Bloomington my bad so Bloomington is the town where that university is stationed and around that town and part of what brought the town up is this idea of giant quarries giant holes cut in the ground for stone cutting uh, is one of the big things that was um, part of that town's uh, growing up, economical and what have you. So there's a differentiation between the college kids who are very transient and very sort of elitist and sophisticated and the townies, as it were, of Bloomington. And they are often referred to as cutters because of that being the big blue-collar job of the town and what have you. So the idea is that you have four guys who are basically you know, in their 20s. They're post-high school. They're at a point where they could be thinking about college maybe but that's not necessarily a given in their world so these four friends just sort of struggling to figure out where they belong and should you know are they just going to end up being you know the guy that works at the A&P grocery store for the rest of their life or or what else are they going to do you know I used to think I was a really great quarterback in high school still think so too can't even bring myself to light a cigarette because I keep thinking I gotta stay in shape. You know what really gets me though? I mean, here I am, I gotta live in this stinking town, and I gotta read in the newspapers about some hotshot kid, new star of the college team. Every year is gonna be a new one. Every year is never gonna be me. I'm just going to be Mike. 20-year-old Mike. 30-year-old Mike. Oh, mean old man, Mike. These college kids out here, they're never going to get old. They're out of shape. Because new ones come along every year. They're going to keep calling us cutters. Them is just a dirty word. Me is just something else I never got a chance to be. And the standout performance, there's a lot of great ones, but the main performance is uh, Dennis Christopher plays this kid who's obsessed with biking, and he's specifically obsessed with the Italian biking team, and he's just taken, gone so far as to start speaking Italian or bits of Italian and listening to Italian music as part of his general day-to-day. And... Part of the fun, the more fun part of the movie is that his dad, played incredibly by Paul Dooley, 
uh, is this, again, a used car salesman, very American kind of guy, kind of stoic, but still funny kind of dad who just cannot handle that his son is so it- Italian obsessed. It's driving him crazy. But so the the tension starts to happen between some of the townies and some of the college kids, and it ends in this very climactic competition, we'll say. I don't want to go too far with it because I was really surprised. One of my favorite, I think I mentioned this maybe on a Patreon episode, mm-hmm. one of my favorite cinematic experiences in a theater ever is I want to say this was maybe seven years ago or so. Uh, I took my wife to see Breaking Away at the Arrow Theater, and I can't remember what the double bill was, but I think we only had time to stay for Breaking Away. But so I took her to see it. Paul Dooley was there. I got to meet him. That blew my mind. I have a picture with him. I was just, he was so sweet. But just seeing this this movie from 1979 play with a 2007 audience, basically like a new movie. It, I mean, there's not a lot of, st- I mean, outside of the clothing style a little bit, the the story is so universal that it just played straight through like you were watching a new movie. And I just, that made my heart just burst. On top of which, the ending is a very, it's a very powerful ending. And it, it just hit me in a way that had had never hit me before. I mean, it hit, had hit me, but in that context with those other people, I could feel that energy. And I was like, wow, this is, this emotional stuff is way more powerful than I ever thought. And this is definitely one of my, I think that was a moment that I had where I was like, I think this is one of my favorite movies of all time. And I had thought that I think previous to this, but that experience cemented it for me that the way that it played and the energy that I felt and the emotion that I felt totally made me, lightning rod just go boom yep that's it it's it's one of the best for me and watching it again this time i've seen it a ton but i i had the same emotional response man it just it absolutely grabs a hold of the inside of me and um it's it's got a lot to do with you know dennis christopher it's also got a lot to do with daniel stern who plays daniel stern yeah oh my god he's so good I, I love him. I mean, another guy that's associated with Home Alone. Um, and Chud. And Chud, right? <laughs> so this is hilarious. Because if you see Daniel Stern in this movie, you definitely get a sense of, or if you see him in Diner, I mean, yeah, those yeah. two performances, you'd be like, whoa, wait a minute, whoa, whoa. He's actually really interesting and, and can do, I don't know, I adore him in this movie. His name's, his character's name is Cyril, and he'll, he'll be your favorite character in the movie, probably. Mm-hmm. The, the reason I think Breaking Away lives on and lasts is the characters. I mean, the, the sports part of it is exciting, but it really is about characters. The four young men, Paul Dooley's character of the father was a standout character in it, uh, an exasperated dad who's dealing with his weirdo son, so there was a lot of, uh, it re- that was the heart of it. When I meet fans of the movie, they're into, again, the sports was the skeleton, but they're into the meat of it, which was the characters, the coming-of-age story, the breaking away of friends, and, and, and that's really the heart of the movie. But but then you've got Jackie Earl Haley is one of the other friends, and Dennis Quaid is the fourth guy. And between those four guys, man, it's just this great sense of, us and them, a great sense of longtime friends and, and the way that longtime friends talk to each other and the way that they kind of look to each other to see what are we going to do next? You know, what what is our plan? I need some help trying to figure out my life and I haven't totally got it, but at least I know that you don't have it either, so we're okay. But, oh, wait a minute, you're thinking about doing something with your life? Well, that throws off our whole dynamic, but I'm curious mm-hmm. about that. So anyway, the, the way they play off each other is incredible and 
the father uh son relationship is amazing um some films just feel so lived in that you it's it's hard to know it's the same genre as red dawn yeah <laughs> like like movies are movies right like it's a thing on a screen but then you see movies that are so heartfelt and feel like you just saw a window into real life somewhere in indiana and with real people who are going through things that you could identify with and it's just so grounded in that way and and romantic in the right way not not unrealistic romance but like how we really view our relationships and friendships you know it's that that movie i came to in a very similar way to the way you just gave me chilly scenes and floored me which was i was dating this girl who was a dancer uh in, in irvine when i was probably 21 and she and i you know had seen tons of movies and was a big cinephile she was not she like you know pretty you know amelie and run lola run you know like uh, pretty <laughs> obvious stuff and and then one day i remember asking her and she said her all-time favorite movie was this movie and i was Whoa. like and i saw i saw a picture of it and i was like oh god a b- movie about like kids biking like yeah. i was like totally not into it yeah and then i watched it and i re- i was like that probably gave our relationship an extra six months <laughs> it was that good like i was I, it made me like open up a whole new Dude, valve in my heart i was gonna say like whatever her taste was if this was her favorite movie she's got that's that's interesting seriously no i mean really did i'm not, I'm not kidding and she loved harold Maud, so that's that's wow. also uh, but no, this one really, it was that same kind of discovery of like, oh, wow, this is a depth very rarely achieved yeah. emotionally in a film, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's so much about it that I love, that that emotional stuff. I also love the use of those quarries, this giant, big hole, you know, cut perfectly into like this octagonal shape in, and it's a bit, it's filled with water. It's a swimming hole where the the cutters hang out. It's just a great location. We were talking about Santa Barbara and cutters way. This is similar. It uses these locations of in and around Bloomington, which is where the movie was filmed at the end. They thank the town because clearly that's part of what gives it that lived in feel is that it's like, Oh, this is really the, the IU campus. And this is really something that, you know I mean? It just, those, those locations that you see and you go, I've never seen a quarry used like that as a hangout spot before. And that mm. makes that you know that just gives this movie its own personality. So that kind of thing is great, and the fact that something stupid is something as little as having a, a an antagonist, in this case Hart Bachner, who everybody knows is the the sort of douchey guy in Die Hard that tries to negotiate with um with Hans Gruber, mm. he he plays the villain, this this college guy, and he plays it. They 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 have it. It's just pitch perfect because he's. He's kind of a douche but and a dick, but it's not overdone. They give him some motivations that sort of help us understand why he would want to be a dick to certain characters, and I just think that is a really key thing that a lot of movies get wrong. They just make a, a villain too comical or too much of an out-and-out dick for no reason at all, which, yeah, that totally happens, but I just like it when a movie can just anchor itself on that little thing, and that really gets the emotion that really I don't know it just does something to me that bit and one other fun tidbit for Thing fans by the way this time I'd I'd never noticed before but Peter Maloney plays the doctor that Paul Dooley one of his lines I'm going to spoil a line just because just saying it doesn't really do it anything but the, the line is refund all I want is a refund 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 are you crazy refund refund Refund! Refund! Easy, 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 Ray. Refund. Refund. And I think it's, for me, one of the great single word lines in cinema. <laughs> Just his <laughs> delivery and 
anyway, when he comes out of his little uh, moment and I see Peter Maloney there, immediately in my mind was like, I was shot today. You know, just (laughs) that's what I wanted to hear him say. But I was just (laughs) like, holy shit, it's the guy from The Thing. That's awesome. So that's like another tie into one of my favorite movies, which I always love to find connections between my favorite movies and my other favorite movies. You know, like pick up on South Street playing on the TV and King of Comedy, little things like that. Mm-hmm, I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. that's awesome. Yeah, it's cool when when they all connect. Yeah, no, that's that'll be a great film, and I bet there's still a lot of people who haven't haven't seen it yet. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, well, yeah, and and my number one is also something that is just always been in in and around the top ten. Uh, again, it was something out of print from Twilight Time, and is currently in print uh, from Twilight Time. It, uh, it just like Eureka it has one of my other favorite lines of all time. It has actually a number of my favorite lines of all time, but this one uh, will give you insight as to the movie. Uh, it's where somebody calls the guy, uh, the main character in this film, a you know, a, you know, a two-bit loser, and he just shoots back. Nobody loses all the time. And it's his proudest moment in the movie because he's like, hey, there's a chance I could not lose this time. Uh, and that is a character called Benny, played in my favorite War Notes film by my favorite Sam Peckinpah movie and one of my favorite movies in the history of cinema, Bring Me the Head of Alfredo Garcia. I guess we came all the way for nothing, huh? Let me tell you something, baby. I could have died in Mexico City or TJ and never known what the hell it was all about. But I got a chance, a ticket. And we're not going to miss it. Now get in there and sit down. Take me to him. There ain't no more chances. Get in. Directed by Peckinpah in 1974. This has always been my favorite Peckinpah. Not even close. Like, I watch Wild Bunch, love it. Think it's, you know, but none of them struck me as personal as when I saw this movie, I thought it was one of the most personal, probably the same way you felt about seeing uh, the movie with biker bikes. I felt about this for some reason. I can't explain it, why it feels so personal. For me personally, I can see why it is to, uh, you know, Peckinpah. This movie is, it's so bizarre that, again, we t- we mentioned this film briefly in one of our first episodes because I mentioned how it's on Golden Turkey Award winner and it's made, it was it's one of the rare films that that year made multiple worst film lists of that year as well as also best film lists, which is utter madness to me like there's some movies where you're like okay i guess i get that this it's like it doesn't make any sense it's just it's really the the height of a lot of people's career and the things that make sense to me now and i didn't necessarily know it when i first saw it but this was actually the only film it's hard to believe to be honest this is the only film of sam peckinpah's entire career that was untouched by any other hands wow he the only one every other film was interrupted by studio interference every single one so he went down to mexico to make a film where he and and got new investors and says i'm fucking done with studios i've had it and he made this film so i didn't know that when i already was so in love with this movie but now that i learned that it makes sense why you know forget pure cinema that's pure peckinpah that's better than pure cinema you know what (laughs) i mean it's like it's like something else and and then to top that Warren Oates secretly, unbeknownst to Peckinpah initially, and obviously it became clear, uh, decided to actually play Peckinpah and not just play the character that was written and discussed with him. So he started bringing in direct uh, uh, from the suit to the sunglasses to certain uh, 
bottles of liquor that Sam was notorious for drinking. Uh, so he started basically doing an imitation in this movie, Warren Oates' version of an imitation, but lovingly because he was very close to him. And it creates really maybe, you know, top five film characters for me all time. Like, I love Benny so much. There's something about him that I just get. And then to take a character like that, who's not an action star at all. He, you know, he's, he's a, you know, working at a bar. He's like an in-between guy, gambler, a, literally a loser. That's why they call him, you know, a loser in that scene. He's just like, nobody loses all the time. It, it's, it's taking that character and then basically putting him in a peck and pile movie like the getaway. And it becomes just this other thing. It's so much more than just an action picture. It's also got this beautiful, really beautiful love, love connection with this, uh, performance performer. Isla Vega is his kind of, she was a prostitute, but is also his, his girlfriend and he wants to kind of get her out of life. And she goes along for the ride and she gives one of my favorite just, you know, she's just so grounded and real and, and sad. And like, like she's experienced life. You see it on every inch of her. And Benny's the type who has experienced life, but never necessarily taken it all on. Anyway, what, ha what they get caught up in is, uh, there is, a uh, a very wealthy, uh, powerful Mexican rancher who, uh, finds out that, uh, a guy called Alfredo Garcia has impregnated his, uh, virginal, seemingly virginal, uh, daughter who was meant to get married. And, uh, so he says, you know, tell somebody to bring me the head of Alfredo Garcia. Uh, Benny's playing piano, kind of like um, uh, Truffaut's Shoot the Piano Player. He's uh, playing piano and, you know, working at a bar as kind of a, in a low life kind of living. And he finds out about this and gets some information from his girlfriend that she might know where this guy would be. And he's like, you know what? There's a reward. Fuck it. Let's do it get in the car let's let's do this i need to change my luck like and he gets way over his head with real criminals and shootouts and uh there's a great very dark scene the way you can tell it hasn't been tampered with is there scenes in it that could stop it from being a masterpiece to some people uh because it seems maybe like it uh takes the film in a different direction but it's exactly why it's a perfect peck and pop film it's a sequence with uh chris christopherson a very sad realistic rape scene that's very it's upsetting because you really like the characters and it really throws you the way it, it transpires but it's treated so realistically in a way and so hopelessly that it adds a lot to the, the it's a miserable worldview i won't lie like it's a dark pessimistic world that they live in but somehow oats is this kind of light that still bring, carries you through this movie and this is for me it's like rolling thunder or a movie like that where uh i you just tell somebody about it, and if they are on your wavelength at all i i literally would have put this in my handshakes i purposely didn't it wasn't because it wasn't a handshake because i wanted to save it for where <laughs> i knew i could go into it more being this one uh now i've heard there's a people say there might be a better in quote marks version now out from arrow but that was way later and i haven't gotten that version so i don't even know if i care because i like this version and i like the notes and i'm and i'm okay with the, you know and, and now it's available again so it's like you know i go you go with what you what you got it's just it's a special movie uh at one point the guy who um one of the editors of variety who was a writer uh who's written three of um monty hellman's films has a script that is about the making of this movie and so it's all about like what peckinpah was going through and oats playing peckinpah and it's like a it's a narrative movie that they were trying to get made i don't know what the status of it is but it totally fascinated me to know more about that just because i was like whoa that's interesting like making 
a movie about Peckinpah making this movie. But, you know, it's it, it's a marvel. And I, I took a friend to it who hadn't seen a Peckinpah movie before. And, man, it, it on a screen, it plays like a comedy. Like, it's hilarious. It's <laughs> really funny when you see some of the lines and some of Oates, you know, Oates just what's there's another line where he's like, don't you look at me with your damn eyes. <laughs> you know, just like just like, I mean, he's so good. And I look and for me to say this is my favorite Oates performance is huge because my he's basically my favorite actor. And I have like five others that I just think he's, you know incredibly good in but there's no i feel like for a lead role he never got to sunk his teeth into something like this this is just you know an incredible piece of filmmaking so when you mentioned it in the first part about uh, i got nervous for a second i did too as soon as i mentioned i was like oh man i remember that's actually one of his favorite movies i hope i didn't my favorite movies no you didn't though that's the fun part because he these movies are there to be spoiled like we want to get these out there to people we want them to see it but this movie has a real place in my heart and and i love peck and pop but i don't think he always speaks to my heart so it's kind of funny that this one does stick there and I think it must just because Benny's kind of a, a lovable character. He's a lovable loser who is, you know, and in, in over his head. And I think that makes it whereas like it's not like you fall in love with McQueen and Getaway. You don't fall in love with really any of the characters in Wild Bunch, even though you love watching them. But it's, you know, it's hard to love them. Uh, I feel like that's really kind of uh, consistent over his filmography. And he's a director I'm sure we'll talk about a lot more, especially when we finally do Westerns. You know, I, I view him as an incredibly important film landscape changer you know mr peckenbar let's uh, start with one of the more controversial areas surrounding you uh, Does one it... of the most controversial areas surrounding me is the fact that uh, there are three people in the world who call me mr peckenbar they are all lawyers for mgm sam may we start with one of the more controversial areas around you and that is does it worry you that in the public mind your work is synonymous with excessive and very explicit violence that you are in fact known as bloody sam no people who uh could take their own leisure at deciding what they did not want to do for a living and apply labels to others journalists tv commentators etc did that some years ago and of course the public uh, went for these labels I think the public has learned, or at least somebody has learned in the passing years, that uh, Bloody Sam was merely a changeover from dishonesty to at least looking at the fact that people do bleed and are hurt. But I am not responsible for the chainsaw, whatever its name is, or any of the other trash that has been put forth. Ideal and violence is a term of very sad poetry. Yeah, no, he's something else, and a guy I've come to appreciate a lot over the past twenty years. I don't know; it's it's been a while because I think I was I got a certain first impression from the Wild Bunch, which I loved, but I wasn't like that's one of my favorite filmmakers ever. I don't know why I like the Wild Bunch a lot. Don't get me wrong, but then as you start to see some of the odd, interesting little tidbits, and this is definitely one of my favorites too. There's something else that comes out. I think I sometimes compare and to John Ford, and I know I'm pretty sure he was a fan of Ford, but that sense of like macho mythology that to me doesn't, in some cases with John Ford, doesn't have enough emotion behind it, or it's it goes to this really saccharine, you know, sappy emotional place that I just that just totally takes me out, and I find that's one of my biggest problems with some of Ford's movies, and I love a good number of them, but. Peckinpah doesn't have that problem, that sappiness. Like he is, is much more cynical 
and I kind of love that about him. You know, I, I mean, there's yeah, emo- yeah. Well, there's emotion on the wall, but the way the men relate to each other, it's actually one of my favorite things in movies. Like the way the men just look at each other towards the end of that movie, it's like whoa, like it's deep. It's it, it's kind of like guys knowing, yeah, let's just do this for each other, one last hurrah, and it and it feels that stuff. Yeah, that stuff's particularly strong in that movie. But yeah, you're right. No, he he definitely he he's able to tap into a different kind of emotion. But this one. Yeah, it's also like after this, there's some a lot of interesting movies still, but not no more you know necessarily masterpieces. You know, it's there. It, you know, he he had his demons, and that's you know a big part of his filmmaking. Well, I just it's funny. I was looking it up on ScreenArchives.com. It's still in print. This is the encore edition. You can go buy it there. But they have a quote from Roger Ebert on the entry, and it says. Extraordinary, a true heartfelt work by a great director who endured despite or perhaps because of the demons that haunted him. I can feel Sam Peckinpah's heart beating and head pounding in every frame. That's just yeah, a great. He actually really did like that one. And, and and it's one of the problems movies get as an art form because I I just pre- totally view it as an art form and always will, even though I know it's also uh, that's you know uh, cut into because it's also entertainment and it's a business. You know, it's an industry, but like we never would question tortured artists when we think about great painters. We don't we don't question that Van Gogh was crazy and would cut off his ear. We don't, we don't question that. It's just like par for the course. I don't see why we have a double standard for film directors sometimes. And I think to just have to accept that they have these demons. I think the problem is they had to play with others and they have to play with a lot of other people to get a film made. So we, we start to expect that their behavior should be a certain way. But the fact that Ridley Scott was despised on the set of Blade Runner, the fact that Stanley Kubrick, there's millions of stories around abound by Kubrick. I think to me that's and David Lynch, you know, the, Twin Peaks ended last night and there's all these people up in arms about, about, you know, certain things. You realize, no, it's to be expected. If you want something special and something unique from an individual viewpoint, you're going to have to expect that that will come at a price, but also with eccentricity and 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 maybe pain in some cases. And I think with Peckinpah, he's working through that pain and he's and he's probably he probably lived longer by making the movies to get through that some of this than if he hadn't had them. And, uh, you know, I just think there's a double standard sometimes on that as an art form. But to me, you know, when they're able to get some of those demons on a screen, it can make some magic. Yeah. I love this movie. Yeah, so well, we th- I gotta say this is a good lineup of movies. If you wanna if you wanna skip all the previous episodes and just pick ten movies to go for, you'd probably do pretty well here still. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna say because of some of this stuff tying into the Danny Perry books, it's kind of like a mini cult movies episode. In yes, some ways, definitely. Uh, definitely. Well, I was definitely gonna. I was planning on if Cutter's Way didn't start here, it would be in our finale of this season because it's in uh, part two. Yeah. So, if you like those cult movies episodes, I mean, this is same kind of territory. But because we love these kind of movies so much, it also ends up being kind of like a quasi handshake movie episode in a way. Because I, I, mean, I think so. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, not. I know these aren't all handshake movies, but these are all really important movies to us for the most part. And so, if you're gonna take recommendations from us. Uh, when we love when people do this is definitely an episode that you might want to dive in on um there's some good stuff here and i'm not talking about my list i, I loved your list i thought that was oh awesome. i mean i think there's a lot i 
really do think there's like 10 or 12 great movies here when 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 you look at fat city at the top two so you know uh we're just the messengers these movies are, uh, are beautifully made and out there in the world hopefully some of them are in print those that aren't are, are not impossible to find you know if there's if there's one you really get your heart set on there is still ebi i recently tracked down the driver which i always thought would be impossible to finally get on from twilight time i i found a copy at amoeba uh hard times i found so you know you can you can track these down even the ones that are out but also keep updating your uh whenever i know you're a great resource for this probably the best on the internet for me anyway uh of telling people when uh new titles are being announced and so looking at always keep an eye on what new twilight time uh titles get announced because there's always something really surprising and 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 one throwback i do think it's worth another um seal of approval to really remind people about pretty poison like you you did because that is a movie that totally surprised me like I think we were kind of similar on this when you first mentioned it. It's like it is a really brilliant little dark film. And I think a lot of people will, will not kind of have seen a movie quite like it before. Hi, I'm Larry Karaszewski, and this is Trailers from Hell. Today we're going to talk about a movie that uh, was never really given its due, kind of underrated at the time, pretty much forgotten today, uh, based on a brilliant script by Lorenzo Semple Jr., 1968's Pretty Poison. Did you ever meet two kids like Dennis and Sue Ann? We think not. They're quite a pair in Pretty Poison. This film falls into a mini-genre I'm quite fond of. The young, attractive couple that commits murder. Think uh, Badlands or Heathers or Gun Crazy or even Bonnie and Clyde. Those are all great films and Pretty Poison belongs on the list. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to that idea of cult movies and the impact that certain kinds of cult movies can have on you the first time you see them. Like I said, for me, Pretty Poison was another one of those movies where I was like, oh, there are movies like that, that yeah. good and that interesting and that idiosyncratic, and they were made 40 years ago? Wait a minute, that means there could be a bunch of these, and mm-hmm. what are the what are the rest of those? So that that's the kind of movie Pretty Poison is, as are some of the ones we mentioned in this episode. And Just, there will even be films this year being made that we will all miss and that will be a gem, you know, that yep. some we'll discover after the fact. That's the crazy thing about the landscape of movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to catch everybody up, like I said, ScreenArchives.com is where you can buy their stuff. You can also go to TwilightTimeMovies.com. They are at Twilight Time DVD on Twitter, and they are at Twilight Time Movies on Instagram. And I would recommend to follow in any one of those arenas. And their Facebook page, they're really probably most active on. Just look up Twilight Time Movies on Facebook. And uh, tell them we sent you. Yeah, that definitely. Would be a nice little perk to hear we'd, that uh, Pure love, Cinema sent them their way. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love if if Nick knew, you know could get some sense of the reach of the show if if you guys end up checking out some of their movies because of it. I'm sure he'd love to hear it. And it's a it's just a great company doing great quality work and in my mind being a little bit undervalued for that work that they're doing as far as the curation and the the greatness of the movies and the the different types of movies that they're putting out every month. Well, and, and also like it's an independent operation, and I, I in the same way when we talked to Code Red, obviously they have a, a slightly more manpower than Code Red did <laughs> as a solo thing. But to think of the quality they put out, and to think of how small. Uh, an entity it is it's pretty remarkable you know because because yeah. to me i would look at their release and go oh they must have the same manpower as criterion <laughs> you know yeah, criterion and you know it's not or, the case or scream factory shout factory or and then whoever i mean just more than pe- more people than you would think would be yeah. involved but so. anyway so we're uh, i mean this is something that's been long this of all the episodes this is probably the one that we talked about earliest doing 
and we knew it was going to be we thought it was going to be first season. I'm glad we waited this long. It gave me a chance to rewatch stuff and it just makes you so much more excited when you get a chance to revisit some of these films you love. Yeah, especially when like we've been talking about the quality is so high and then you either come across those movies that function perfectly in the discovery category or you're reminded just how great it is to watch a great movie. I mean, that's that's the experience I had with putting this episode together. Well, we hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, you can find us on the nowplayingnetwork.net. Uh, and where else are we on? Oh, we, hey, the big news, we started an Instagram account. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot about that. We yes. just started it, and you and, we, and you all day posted, like, we, it was awesome. We posted, like, four pictures from every single episode uh, just to catch ourselves up, and now we will start posting all sorts of stuff. So well done on that. Yeah, no, it was, it was a, something you had been talking about for a while, and I don't know why I thought it was harder to do than it was to have multiple accounts active. It <laughs> yeah, it's t- like one button. It's just <laughs> totally the easiest thing in the world. Anyway, check us out there, definitely. Uh, I know a lot of people use Instagram. Sometimes people only use Instagram as yeah, their yeah. social media, so... Pure Cinema Pod, I believe, is our handle at yeah. Instagram. And yeah, we'll uh, start doing more stuff uh, from that for sure as we as we do our our episode. That'll be fun. Yeah, I mean, uh, we do we do share a lot on Twitter and Facebook, but because there's a lot of picture based stuff that we have, like pictures we've taken with guests and pictures we've taken when we we're at the place where we recorded something or whatever, the Instagram account's going to get a lot of that stuff that some of these other places haven't gotten so yeah yeah that, yeah on twitter sometimes feels too egotistical to post lots of photos yourself it just doesn't feel like the place for it so uh yeah so we'll be on there and we are uh despite going to the bi-weekly we're gonna still go uh strong we're, we got some good stuff still ahead for this season and uh and beyond so thanks for uh listening and hopefully you uh you enjoyed the toilet time thank you Shall it be? All. Oh. Let me close early today.